Welcome to another riveting episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Sipinski, and we are the Cognito Ergo Insectum Piscatio Zoom Podcast. As our good fly fishing friend, Renee Dakar would say, I think, therefore, I fly fish. And we are going to dive into another interesting topic today, especially for you migratory chrome chasers and space avores that are in love with Atlantic salmon and steelhead and sea run brown trout and all the beautiful fish we try to chase these days. Uh, um, and today's topic is, is a wonderful one, one that's dear to my heart. Uh, but first of all, uh, the stoneflies are hatching here in Michigan about a month early, if not more, five weeks early, which I've never seen. We've had a very mild winter. We had two weeks of winter. We had snow, heavy snow for two weeks. And Close to zero temperatures, and uh, and now it's back to spring, and I'm seeing birds already. So uh, climate change is here. El, it's an El Nino winter, but I don't never think I've seen early black Taniopteryx stoneflies hatching so early. So uh, uh, nature is telling us something, folks. Um, first of all, thank you to all the listeners that listen to the below this po- the below the meniscus series. Uh, it was 12 hours of t- talking about wet fly and nymph fishing. And uh, we had some excellent guests on that whole series. And uh, you want to learn everything about that. Uh, you have a lot of a lot of listening material and uh, things to practice on the stream. But uh, first of all, our prayers and blessings to all those people that are still enduring wars in the world today and, and craziness and hardship. Um, people that have lost loved ones, people that are going through all kinds of hardship and afflictions in their lives, illnesses. Uh, we pray that you get well and things resolve themselves, and uh, and uh, we pray for our planet, which we are going to talk about today, uh, which is our topic, the plight of Atlantic salmon, civilization's founding fish, and you know, you know, trout fishermen eventually find Atlantic salmon, just like the great Lee Wolf did, and Art Lee, and all the people that you know fell in love with brown trout, and. Um, I fell in love with them when I was a little boy, nine years old in Europe on the Baltic Sea, and I wrote about that introduction into in my Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus book, which was inspired by Dr. Bjorn Johnson's work, Atlantic Salmon and Brown Trout Habitat as a Template. So Salmo is one fish, and uh, these these Atlantic Salmon are, are not, not stranger to any trout fisherman, because if you've caught a Brown Trout, you've caught an Atlantic Salmon, and, and Brown Trouts are sometimes called a poor man's Atlantic Salmon. And, um, you know, I've had the wonderful opportunity to travel all over Europe and fish for them back in my apprentice days in Europe and uh, spent a lot of time in Iceland for the last 25, 30 years of traveling there. And, um, uh, you know, as a reference to you listeners, we did two excellent Atlantic Salmon podcasts in the early start of our, our uh, hollowed waters uh, with Topher Brown, uh, the author of Atlantic Salmon Magic. Topher is an extra, extremely knowledgeable person. So if you want some more good insight into that, plus most of it was about how to spay fish and for Atlantic Salmon and, and the techniques that we used. And then we just did one recently with uh, sort of a modern day Lee Wolf, uh, uh, Icelandic Lee Wolf, the, the, the great Arnie Balderson. And we did one called Atlantic Salmon and Sea Trout of the Viking Rim. And he is true Viking, and he's now, I think, in B.C. chasing Atlantic salmon, excuse me, um, uh, wild uh, steelhead. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's uh, there's so much to listen to, but this is going to be a very interesting one because we have a premier person 
um, that is on the plight of saving Atlantic salmon. And, uh, you know, there, there's never been a fish on Earth that we humans have been fascinated more than and loved to death than Salmo Salar, Atlantic salmon. The Romans and their conquest of Europe and the British Islands saw, you know, saw them leaping waterfalls and thus they gave them the name Salar, the leaper. Uh, and even in Gaulish Aquitania, back when the Romans were conquering on their way to the UK and Scotland, uh, the, the, the Aquitanian clans and tribes swore allegiance to the god Salmo rather than to Caesar. Um, you know, early cave dwellings of Cro-Magnum and, and, and um, Neanderthal's etchings uh, in the caves of La Chaux in France, uh, they drew pictures of Atlantic salmon. It was their... It was what sustained them in the winter, when in the fall, when these fish came up the rivers uh, and, and gave them food by the thousands. And these fish all went all the way up into the Alps, from from the Seine and into the Rhine and the Rhone and those rivers. Um, so you know, it, it's a fish that has been loved, and and you know, royalty castles were built, Balmoral for the royal family were built on large land holdings on Atlantic salmon rivers, and to this day, Atlantic salmon are cherished and treasured. And, and when the Romans brought Atlantic salmon back to Rome, the, the pelts of Atlantic salmon traded equally with gold. And, and you know, it, it's truly amazing and how these fish have had attention, brought attention from mankind to, to, to who they are. And, and, and they're the most sought after fish for fly fishermen. They're on everybody's bucket lists and commercial fishermen. And, and today, you know, the gastronomical palates, everybody craves for, for their flesh, omega-3s, all the health benefits, all the keto diets. Everybody orders a grilled salmon or a poached salmon. Um, so we have loved these fish to death. And have we loved them to death to the point that we're bringing them to the point of extinction? And um, what our guest today is going to talk about is where we are in the world and, and all the issues that we have to face and all the things that we have to balance to please people, to please governments, to please business, to please fishermen, to please chefs. I mean, it's an endless, endless struggle. And, and we're going to we're going to address all these issues today and talk a little bit about that and talk about fishing. But without further ado, our guest is from St. Andrews, New Brunswick. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. He joined the staff of ASF in 19. 1988, serving as manager of regional programs, director of communications, executive director of public policy, and in 1995 was appointed president and chief executive officer. He has served on several regional, national, and international conservation boards and committees, including Canada's Atlantic Salmon Advisory Committee and as an NGO, as you know, that's non-governmental organization, representative to the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, NASCO. In 2015, he co-chaired the minister's advisory Committee on Wild Sa Atlantic Salmon in Eastern Canada. He has received several awards in recognition of his work in Atlantic Salmon Conservation, among them the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Mr. Taylor graduated from Arcadia University in 1983. Uh, my son graduated from Arcadia, which is a little different. That's in Philly. But anyways, with that note, please welcome our honorable guest, Mr. Bill Taylor. Mr. Bill Taylor, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you very much, and um, and thank you for that very uh, nice introduction. Happy to be here. Well, wonderful, Bill. Um, you've done so much great work. Um, you know, uh, how did you how did you get addicted to Atlantic salmon? I mean, there's always that there's always that uh, that spiritual moment when you know you devote your life to a fish, and uh, how, where did that start for you, Bill? 
It started, um, you know, very early. I can remember, and this is absolutely true. I remember uh, trout fishing with my dad and my uncles when I was like three and four years old and actually standing on bridges and looking down and and, and seeing trout resting in, in pools and so on. A worm fishing then um, graduated to... Uh, uh, fly fishing probably when I was uh, 10, 11 years old and and fly fishing for trout. Um, I grew up in New Brunswick and we've got a lot of wonderful rivers, trout rivers, sea trout rivers, Atlantic salmon rivers. Um, so from the time I was 11 to about 14 or 15, it was spending as much time as I possibly could uh, fly fishing for trout and learning how to fly fish, self-taught, but uh, um, you know, read all of Lee Wolf's books and Joe Brooks's books and everything I get my hands on and um, um, just fell in love with rivers and being out in nature, uh, outdoors person, loved to hunt, loved to fish. When I was a kid, I would snare rabbits. So spent more time outdoors than indoors and rivers just fascinated me. And then, of course, the fish that were were there. Um Started salmon fishing when I was 15, 14, 15 years old, and that would have been in the uh, early 70s. And that took me three years of actually trying. I'm not sure how many days per year I spent on the river, but let's just say 10 or 12 days for three or four years before I actually hooked my first Atlantic salmon. So um, I did not give up easy. And when I hooked that first grilts, a three-pounder, on the Kennebecasis River, which is a tributary of the St. John River in New Brunswick, um, once uh, home to the second largest Atlantic salmon run in, in North America. Now um, the whole system's teetering on the brink of extinction. But that little grilts on the Kennebecasis River and Seacord's Pool just actually captured me right, you know, right to the very core. And uh, I remember everything about the fish taking, uh, the four jumps that it took. It was the first fish that actually took line off my reel, which I thought was pretty cool. There were three or four older gentlemen standing around me telling me what to do and what not to do. It was all kind of a blur. And when we got the fish up on the bank, I was the proudest person, I think, ever. It's a spiritual moment. Uh, it's a calling. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, why are you, why are you addicted to these fish? And it's just like, you remember everything about what happened. And I remember I, I was with my uncle who had a big hardy bamboo spay rod and I held the line with my hand and the fish broke off. And then I watched the fish all summer in the pool on our farm with the big green Highlander in its mouth, like a little green cigar. And eventually the, the thing came out of its mouth, eventually it rotted out. But it, yeah, it's, it's a spiritual moment. It's like a calling. Um, Neville, Neville tells me that you're one of the best Atlantic salmon fishermen on the planet. Is that true? No, not even close. Well, cause he said you were better than Topher Brown and you were better than myself. Well, and, uh, I, no, 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 don't, uh, <laughs> Topher's a good friend and, uh, I would have a hard time holding a candle to Topher. Um, <laughs> And I'm not a spay. I know. I know you and Topher in particular. Uh, I'm a single-handed guy. Um, oh, yeah, I've dabbled. Yeah. I've dabbled with two-handers in in Russia and so on. But uh, I, um, I'm a single-handed uh, fisher. Um, 
if there's any chance of raising a fish on a dry fly, that's my preferred approach. So yep. um, mostly a dry fly fisherman and a single-handed rod is a better tool for dry fly fishing than a, than a two-handed rod or spay rod anyway. Um, but I'm, I, I've been very fortunate. I've fished... Um, you know, probably no, well, nowhere near as many rivers as, as you or Topher, probably, but I've fished uh, several rivers in Russia, fished in Iceland. Um, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of rivers in Canada, Labrador, Quebec North Shore, throughout New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Um, and just, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's not a sport, it's a way of life. I mean, for people who are really, really involved in Atlantic salmon, they care about the fish, they care about the people that work on the rivers, the communities and so on. Um, Atlantic salmon do not live in ugly places, some of the most beautiful places on earth. And, um, it's just fascinating to be, you know, whether it's on the Miramichi in New Brunswick or the Hunt River, Eagle River in, in Labrador, it's just absolutely, uh, the best place to be in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, uh, fishing dries, that's what I love to do also. And, uh, one-handed rods, probably you could manipulate, you could do just about anything, dead drift, uh, big bombers, or you could, wake them and swing them and so yeah single-handed rods but we're gonna we're gonna get that two-hander in you i think once you get addicted to that two-hander you won't you won't put it down i guarantee you well well, well i've, I've fished i've fished two-handers and i'm not very good at it i think the, th the thing for me was that um after fishing in russia for eight or ten years um straight on the wonderful uh, Karlovka, Rinda, uh, those mm -hmm. two rivers in particular, Zolotoy, yeah. Islitsa, um, no question, uh, the two-handed rod there, spay rod, was a much more effective tool. Um, in some cases, you know, fishing big flies, fishing heavy water, um, you know, wanting to cast 120 feet as opposed to 80 feet and, and all of that. But even after a few years of fishing the two-handed rod in Russia, I, I just I backed up. And, and went back to the single-handed rod and just figured that's what I want to fish with. And that's what I feel best with. That's what I feel most proficient with. And in most cases, maybe not so much now that I'm, uh, um, you know, this is 20 years uh, later after Russia. But, uh, you know, back then in my early 40s, I figured I could wade just about any place I needed to get to to fish an 80-foot line. Yeah. I think when you start getting rotator cuff problems in your shoulders and you start finding out that a spay rod does all the work for you, you absolutely do. It's really lazy fishing because you really don't have to cast. If you manipulate the rod properly and you and you, and you you water load and you set up your anchor properly, you really don't do anything. It's just basically like pushing a stick. So I think uh, I like it now because I got shoulder problems from double hauling a single-handed rod for yeah. so many years. I'm like... Uh, so yeah, that's it's it's a lot, a lot easier. But uh, anyways, let's get into the meat and potatoes, uh, Bill. You know we got a lot to talk about today. But um, give us your take. You know um, where we are in this state of of wild Atlantic salmon, and uh, I got your summary, executive summary from twenty twenty three, and we're going to go through that a little bit. But um, you know where where do you see it? Are you a glass half empty or a glass half full guy? And and the nature of your job. Where do you see them today? And, and, you know, the last 20 years has been brutal on these fish. And we've went through gutters. We've been through despair. You've been in your office through despair and days of jubilee and then days of despair. And it's been such a roller coaster. And give us the whole state of the state right now as you see it, sir. Well, I mean, just to, to start off, I'm definitely uh, a guy half, the glass is half full. 
and I think anybody in the conservation business, whether it's salmon conservation, trout conservation, or just environmentalism in, in general, needs to be a conservationist. You've got to have hope. You've got to be an optimist uh, in this business. Um, there's no question that wild Atlantic salmon globally, and globally means throughout the North Atlantic, so on both sides of the Atlantic, are, are in trouble, and in many cases in very, very serious trouble. Lots of populations teetering on the brink of extinction, threatened and endangered. There's a myriad of problems, uh, not the least of which is climate change, open net pen salmon farming, increasing predator populations, decreasing um, forage fish, prey, prey uh, you know, food for the salmon. Um in the last 40, 50 years, the global population, so again, North Atlantic population of wild Atlantic salmon has gone from 7 or 8 million total, so large salmon and grilts, down to about uh, you know 2 million, so um, a 67, 66% decrease just in the last 40 or 50 years. So that's in our lifetime, and that's... Um, that's an absolute um, travesty for sure. But in North America, uh, and, and in both the U.S. and Canada, I was going to say in particular Canada, because that's where 99% of Atlantic salmon in, in North America uh, are today, it's actually more of a good news story. Um, the uh, Just thinking back the last few years, um, Populations of both large salmon and grilts have pretty much been stable or even increasing modestly for the last 25 years. Um, large salmon uh, returns to North American rivers, mostly Canadian, uh, have been increasing um, each of the last um, eight or nine years. Um, grills populations have been stable or increasing. I'll, I'll give you some numbers just to just to back those comments up. Just in the last three three or four years here, 2019, um, there were five four hundred and fifty-three thousand large salmon and grilts combined. So total returns of adult salmon to North America. The next year, 2020, there were six hundred and twelve thousand. Uh, again, that's large salmon and grilts together. We don't have figures for 2021 because that was COVID and a lot of the assessments and, and work out in the field didn't take place because of travel restrictions. But um, in 2022, which is the most recent year we have uh, accurate data for, the scientists are still uh, assessing the 2023 returns. But in uh, 2022, there were 750,000 um, again, large salmon grilts combined. So the, the um, definitely glass is half full. Um, and that's throughout, you know, yeah, that's from Maine all the way up into Ungava uh, in the southern part of the salmon's range. So the state of Maine, southern maritime provinces, um, you know, things aren't stable. Things are actually uh, in, in, in pretty bad shape. There's lots of good news in, in the state of Maine, but southern Maritimes, Nova Scotia, southern New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, even southern Newfoundland, um, salmon populations are in trouble. Um, but when you get north of, say, the Miramichi and your Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, uh, the Gas Bay of Quebec, the North Shore of Quebec, all of Labrador, all of Ungava, uh, the northern part of Newfoundland, salmon populations are in uh, in good shape, and in some cases, the best shape they've been in in the last thirty or forty years. So, um, you know, lots to do, lots of areas where salmon need our help, but 
it, uh, you know, for me, I think there's a lot, maybe even too much doom and gloom around uh, Atlantic salmon conservation, Atlantic salmon angling in Canada. There's lots of good news stories, and the species is actually not just hanging on, it's doing pretty darn good in lots of areas. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it's very interesting on that note, because we've had a few years that it was really in, in big trouble. Um, and I'm going to get to one particular area, and we're going to discuss the several areas that are happening that, that, you know, this is sort of like a perfect storm, what happened to Atlantic salmon. It was not just, you could not just put one finger on one, one trigger on one smoking gun and saying, hey, this is what did it in. It's you're fighting a battle on so many different fronts. And at any point in time, that battle could go in one direction and really tank the recovery of Atlantic salmon. And it's it's um, it's one of those things that uh, you're 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 getting bombarded on all different fronts from different things. And we're going to get into these various things. But, you know. Uh, we're going to get more into the numbers later when we talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, the share of of where 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 are the where's some of the issues that happen when it comes to harvest and 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 things of that nature. But you know, every time you order a salmon in a restaurant, uh, we acknowledge how much we love them to death and and how much our responsibility as humans on this planet have an effect on these fish. So, you know, the person in, in um, in New Orleans, Louisiana, that eats salmon and red grilled blackened salmon is part of the problem and part of the solution. And it's not just a it's not just a Canadian thing. It's not just a Icelandic or a UK thing or a Scottish thing. It's it's everyone on this planet. Uh, we're putting stress on Atlantic salmon populations around the globe to further decline. And it's a systemic problem that, that we must acknowledge that we are part of this problem and part of the solution. And we need to accept these fish that they are the canaries of the coal mine uh, of our planet. They, they, they use the oceans, which are in flux right now, and they use land, which are the streams that run through the land and the mountains and the rivers. And if, if we lose these fish, it's going to be devastating for, for our human population. So to all of everybody that's out there, if you've never fished for Atlantic salmon, if you've never done it, if this is our civilization's fish that we have loved to death and can we, have we have loved them so much. And, and one of the biggest problems, when I look at your graphs and when, and, and, and I look at your state of Atlantic salmon and I look at that graph and I look at that big plunge that happened around 1985 to about 1994 and, and onward, the plunge continued, but that dropped off the cliff in 1985-ish around that area, 86, and it just went down so drastically. And if you look at time frame when a bulk of Atlantic salmon farming, fish farming was going on, was in that late 70s, early 80s, these things were propping up absolutely everywhere. And th therein lies a big problem for wild Atlantic salmon populations, because as you know, uh, we're gonna, as our listeners will introduce you to the fact that these fish pick up sea lice and all kinds of, uh, of diseases, genetic inbreeding with escapees, and escapees are everywhere. You see these pens of rotted, decaying fish that are fed antibiotics. Uh, it's just a disease-filled cesspool that you're eating in a restaurant, and you're thinking, "Wow, this is a this is a 
fish that so leaves loves fresh water and blah blah blah. But sometimes what you're eating is just absolute garbage. And um, so let's identify that right off the bat. And your thoughts on on how what that decline happened. And there was a lot of things going on with climate change, which we're going to get into also. But to me. That seems like a very powerful smoking gun. How are you guys looking at it, Atlantic Stem Federation? Well, well, so I mean, no, no question that one of the um, the biggest threats to to wild Atlantic salmon globally uh, is open net pen salmon farming. And you're right, the open net pen salmon farming uh, started in Norway. Um, I guess it was probably late 60s and early 70s. And then through the late 70s, early 80s, there were uh, mom and pop operations in uh, in eastern Canada. Um, open net pen salmon farming on a small scale probably doesn't pose a lot of risk to Atlantic salmon, but now it's a global commodity. And so many of these farms have millions and millions of salmon in very small areas. In fact, one of the highest concentrations of open net pen salmon farming operations is right outside the Atlantic Salmon Federation's headquarters here in Passamaquoddy Bay, which is a small uh, part of the Bay of Funday. And you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the risks, the threats to wild salmon from open net pen salmon farming. Um, there's escapes. Uh, the fish escape in huge numbers. In some cases, in the hundreds of thousands. And they they have the urge to run up nearby rivers, and then they uh, potentially breed or spawn with wild salmon. And the progeny is is dumbed down over just a few generations to the point that uh, after just two or three generations, the wild salmon in that river are, are pretty much extinct. Um, we know that I mean, in, in the open net pens, the salmon are in confined areas, huge concentrations of fish. Um, they're fed way too much on a regular basis. They don't have to avoid predators. Basically, they're couch potatoes. They're fat, dumb, and happy. And uh, a wild salmon is, you know, a decathlete at the Olympics. You know, one of the it's a, it's a, it's at um, the fittest of, of of any fish out there in the ocean. So when you have an aquaculture escapee breeding with a wild Atlantic salmon, it's like taking an Olympic gold medalist and uh you know having kids with someone who's not not an olympic gold medalist potato chips at a super bowl exactly nfl games right <laughs> and, and the research that's been done shows that you know a, a female uh an escaped farm salmon um the eggs are not going to won't be as many eggs in the female they won't be as viable she won't dig as deep a reds and if she breeds with a wild male, then there's going to be a lot fewer fish that actually survive or even hatch. And after a couple of generations, very few fish left. And just the reverse with with the male, if it's a uh, an aquaculture escapee male, the milk production's not as not as fertile, um, and you get a lot fewer fish that uh, young fish coming out of that that breeding. So after just a few generations, the wild salmon population is pretty much uh, pretty much toast. Um, then there's the pollution. There's also diseases, the farm salmon, uh, all kinds of antibiotics and pesticides. I mean, if if people uh, knew what they were eating when they when they you know purchased farm salmon, either at the fish market or in a restaurant, um, I mean, I wouldn't even feed it to my dogs. Um, I can't imagine you know, and and you've got um, in Norway, you know, which is. Uh, 
supposedly has some of the strictest regulations when it comes to open net pen salmon farming um, in Norway. In Norway, uh, they recommend that pregnant women don't eat farm salmon more than once a month. That kids under 12 years old don't eat farm salmon more than once a month. So I mean, there's all kinds of issues and problems, human health issues. But then there's the wild salmon issues with the escapes, the sea lice, the disease, the genetic interbreeding, and anywhere in the North Atlantic. Um, Western Scotland, um, Southern Norway, uh, Iceland today now, a uh, huge problem in Iceland, um, Southern Maritimes, anywhere there's a high concentration of open net pen salmon farming, wild Atlantic salmon are extinct or threatened with extinction. Yeah, it's, um, it's getting bad. And, um, the big pro well, first of all, how do how do we as you know somebody in um, San Antonio, Texas, or Austin, Texas, ordering salmon? Uh, how do you help with this? How do you help Atlantic Salmon Federation? First of all, everybody should join Atlantic Salmon Federation if you care about these fish. If you care about a fish of civilization, this is not a plug, but it's 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 a fish that we all need to embrace. You know. I, I hear, you know, oh, I'm a saltwater guy. I only fish for snook or I only fish for tarpon or I, I'm a trout guy. I don't, you know, everybody's responsibility is a fish that, it, you know, if God designed a perfect fish, it would be the Atlantic salmon because it has everything. It has everything we admire and beauty of, of a fish. It, it has flesh of, of the gods. It has a sporting ability of, of a very few fish. Um, so how do you as a, as a person adapt that when you go to a restaurant and you love salmon and most people do ask that waitress or ask the owner, where do you get your salmon from? Do you know where you're getting your salmon from? Do you, are these responsibly raised salmon? Are they, are they sustainably farm, farm raised where you, where you have, you know, if you, we start putting pressure on these people to start investigating, where are you getting your salmon from? I'm not buying that salmon from that person. You know, there's there's several markets out there like Whole Foods and other places that have stickers and logos and say, we buy responsibly raised salmon. Right now in Florida, in Homestead, Florida, is a, is a place called uh, Atlantic uh, Sapphire, and they have one of the largest inland commercial farms in Florida raising Atlantic salmon, far away from every population, to be done responsibly. There's issues occasionally, but they found a place uh, for our listeners. Um, I think we talked a little bit about it last time with, with Topher, but they found a place where, where the, the shelves of water mix both brine water and fresh water. And the farther they dig down into these caverns, these subterranean aquifers, they could get the mix of fresh water and salt water and far away from these populations. Uh, this is the direction that we need to go. So you as a consumer... This is how you could grasp this and start asking these questions. And this is going to get around and it's going to catch on to people. And once these these this gets going, uh, these we're going to put these fish farms out of business by by public consent. We're going to do this. We're going to make this happen. So it's a responsibility of everybody to do that. But another question, you know, it's tough because industry fuels jobs, jobs fuels governments, jobs fuels politicians, politicians get elected because they create jobs. It's money, 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 money is the drain and money is the goal. And this is what you are fighting all the time 
Bill, uh, in your job is how do you please this sector? How do you please that sector? You know, we're trying to please everybody, but are we finally pleasing the fish that needs our help the most, the canary in the coal mine? How do you how do you go about dealing with all the governmental politicians and lobbies and industries and, you know, all oh, this creates jobs, Bill, so forget about it. We're not going to, how do you did, how do you juggle it, Bill? Well, it, it is a juggling act and it's not about pleasing uh, everybody. Uh, it's about doing the right thing. And <laughs> excuse me, Matt. And as you said, just a, se a second ago, um, you know, the Atlantic Salmon Federation's client is the Atlantic Salmon. That's who we want to please. And if you give Wild Atlantic Salmon half a chance, they're going to respond in a positive way. So um, we're advocates, um, lobbyists in, in, to some extent. Uh, we put pressure on government on a regular basis, uh, encouraging them, urging them to do the right thing uh, by wild salmon, uh, making sure that uh, positions, policies, laws are going to benefit wild Atlantic salmon. It's it's not an easy road to hoe. Uh, there are conflicting uh, uh, issues and in, in industry out there that uh, you know, forest industry, industry wants to clear-cut forests, which impacts uh, a watershed. The open net pen salmon farming industry has a huge lobby. Uh, lots of examples like that. But, um, you know, our message, the Atlantic Salmon Federation's message to the Canadian government in particular, uh, where wild Atlantic salmon populations are still in pretty good shape, is that the recreational salmon fishing industry, and it is an industry, uh, is a green industry, has very little environmental impact, very little impact on wild salmon itself, uh, creates lots of jobs. And the Atlantic Salmon Federation back in 2011 commissioned a, an economic study evaluating, analyzing the economic benefit and jobs related to wild Atlantic salmon in Quebec and the four Atlantic provinces. And in 2011, uh, wild Atlantic salmon were worth about $220 million to the people of Eastern Canada, um, provided 4,000 full-time equivalent jobs. And you got to remember, that's in rural areas. That's the North Shore of Quebec. That's Labrador. That's Newfoundland. That's northern New Brunswick. That's Cape Breton Island, where there aren't a lot of alternatives for, for good jobs. And when you uh, look at the inflation, we had the, those figures updated to 2022 figures, and wild Atlantic salmon were worth $350 million to Eastern Canada. That's on par with the open net pen salmon farming industry in, in Eastern Canada. So um, there are jobs. There are good jobs. There's revenue for local communities, river communities. Uh, there's a lot of incentive there, uh, economic incentive, social economic incentive, um, to keep our rivers healthy, to keep our wild salmon populations healthy. And as you said several times, wild Atlantic salmon are like the canary in the coal mine. If you have a healthy salmon run, there's a good chance that everything else living in that river, living in that estuary is in good shape as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I talked about this, you know, we're dealing with this perfect storm of, of colliding. And, you know, just the last, I don't know, I don't know what your feeling is, but it seems like COVID was a big turn for Atlantic salmon because a a lot of people didn't didn't travel, didn't come to fish. It, it hurt a lot of people that make money off Atlantic salmon fishing, the lodges, the resorts, uh, you know. But COVID was a big game changer for a lot of things, and and we forget about we had COVID. I think it's what's really interesting for me is how quickly humans forget that we had a 
Two years ago, two and a half years ago, we were sitting around watching TV thinking we are going to die, okay? And, and and all of a sudden, we, we forgot about it, and now we're, it seemed like COVID put humanity back on track to be speeding up to, to make up for lost time. But, you know, some people say one of the best things for COVID was that people were not getting out and fishing, people were not traveling, we're leaving fish alone, Um you know, we we as humans operate on a sense of greed and, and greed and self-satisfaction and narcissism and all the things that make us. But, you know, some some true ecologists, some true conservationists will say, you know, the best thing we could do for some fish like, you know, in B.C., they're having a big problem with wild steelhead and the east, west coast, Washington state, Oregon state, uh, they shut their rivers down to fishing in Washington completely for wild uh, steelhead in certain situations. Um, some people say we should shut down Atlantic salmon rivers until there's, you know, until <laughs> until they get better, um, you know, quit, quit harassing these poor fish. So, you know, you got that and then you got a fish that was built to, uh, to entertain us, a, a fish that was built, you know. COVID, the numbers seemed to skyrocket during COVID. Uh, and we, and, you know, in 2020, looking at 2020 numbers, which I want to go through briefly with you after we take a break. But, you know, we've seen a surge lately in the last couple of years, uh, right after COVID, of numbers going up. Uh, how, how did you think COVID impacted Atlantic salmon in, in a direct way or indirect way? What's your, what's your philosophical thoughts about that? Well, uh, I really don't think that COVID itself um, had a huge impact on, on, on wild Atlantic salmon. You know, certainly in uh, 2019, 2020, fewer people fishing. But, um, you know, in New Brunswick, where I live, no, no one traveling to fish, but there were still people fishing. No, you know, not as much activity as, as normal, but people in New Brunswick could still fish in New Brunswick. People in Quebec could still fish in Quebec. Um, you know, 2020, 2021, we could begin traveling again. Uh, it was great when we could welcome our, our U.S. friends back to uh, Eastern Canadian rivers. Um, you know, I think if, if I look back further than just the, you know, the th four years, I guess, of COVID, um, wild Atlantic salmon populations uh, hit the low ebb in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, and since the late 90s, uh, and it hasn't been every single year that it's gotten better. But since the late 90s, there's a very distinct upward trend so that things have been getting better uh, since then. And, and, you know, it's kind of like the stock market, good years and bad years up and down. But uh, it's it's a definite uh, uptick over the last uh, many years. And large salmon in particular, which are the most important spawners, um, the large, a large female you know, a 10 or 20 pound female carries two and three times as many eggs as, as a grilts. Uh, most grilts are male, so they don't contribute as much to uh, to spawning as, as large salmon. Um, and there's been a, a you know, a, a 30, 40% increase in large salmon making it back to the rivers of North America, rivers in Canada <laughs> over the last 40 years, last 20 years, 25 years. So um, again, coming back to the glass half full, th things are not as bad as a lot of people portray. Um, and that's not to sugarcoat the, uh, the problem. Still lots of issues out there. There's still lots of work that has to get done. Um, but it's, 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 
it's actually um, getting better, and I really am optimistic. I mean, I keep very uh, careful, um, you know, journal fishing notes as I've had since I probably started in the uh, in the early '80s, <clears throat> even before I started working for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And um, you know, my fish per day um, catch rate, release rate has not changed a lot. I mean, there's been some years like 2011 when things were really, really good. There were years, uh, late 90s, when things were really, really good. But, um, you know, it, it's there's still lots of good news stories out there. And Atlantic salmon, if you can get to the Gaspe, if you can get to Labrador, northern Newfoundland, oh, yeah. northern New Brunswick, Cape Breton, all kinds of fish. Yeah, and uh, and you are actually sitting on a roll at the Atlantic Salmon Federation because you're, you're North America. But there's a big problem across the ocean, and um, yep. I'd like to talk about that. And uh, and that's the that's the problem that gets into our limelight a lot. Is is what's going on? Um, there was a movie uh, trailer called, put out called Lost at Sea by Green Planet Films, and it was a UK based thing. And uh, it was a wonderful film documentary. You could go on YouTube and and look it up. Lost at Sea, you know. We're losing these smolts at sea, and we don't know what's going on. Uh, Scotland is having a tremendously terrible problem right now. It's to go to Scotland, and I spent a lot of time in Scotland. My son went to school in, in Edinburgh, um, and I fished the rivers, the Tay, the Dee, the Spey. Uh, wonderful people, wonderful tradition. Spay fishing was founded on the River Spey. Um, and, um, you know, it breaks your heart to see these beautiful rivers made for Atlantic salmon, absolutely gorgeous rivers, and you could fish them in a fisherman. If you get a one salmon a year, you've had a phenomenal year, and most of the time you don't get anything. And when I go fishing in Scotland, I go there to to, to enjoy the Scotch whiskey and to see the beautiful people and the beautiful environments and the same in other countries. And uh, and Europe's having a problem. In Southern Europe, the southernmost thing. Um, so how does how does climate change we're going to talk about climate change because climate change is one part of that that conundrum um how how does that affect it and um you know it, it, it's almost like a perfect storm that hit them and we've had some pretty bleak years like you said in the 90s and you know and then again probably you know late 2000s we, we and we're having bleak years right now all the way through europe and stuff but it's that is the the oceans are warming um um the their oceans are getting colder in certain areas they're warming in other areas um the 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 whole where a smolt leaves a river and gets out there into diluted brine water now from ice melts um you know the the polar caps are melting they're they're getting making water extremely cold where they shouldn't be that cold and then they're diluting water. Um, lost at sea, that you know, how much work are you guys putting into smolt monitoring and and seeing what's going on out there? When they leave the river, they just disappear in that first first year or two. What are what are what are you guys seeing um, at Atlantic Salmon Federation? Well, we, we've been um, we're doing a lot uh, on that end. In fact, the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Uh, was a big part of the Lost at Sea documentary, which Deidre Brennan uh, and Rick Rosenthal did. Uh, a tremendous film, and like yourself, I encourage folks to to find it online. It's uh, it's fascinating, and it it talked about um, the issues affecting 
uh, Atlantic salmon throughout the North Atlantic, so both in the UK and uh, in Scandinavia and uh, and here in the US and, and Canada. And um, for many years, decades through the uh, 90s, early 2000s, salmon scientists were telling us that the number one issue impacting Atlantic salmon right now was low marine survival. So smolts were heading out of our rivers in pretty good numbers, or in some cases, very good numbers, but they were not coming back uh, to spawn as adults in the same numbers that they would have 10 or 20 years ago. I'll give you an example from a river I know very well, uh, the Miramichi River in New Brunswick, uh, one of the largest, uh, most productive Atlantic salmon rivers in the world, actually. It's got all kinds of problems right now, but uh, in the 80s, <laughs> excuse me, early 90s, um, uh, smolt going out would have come back as adults to spawn at about a 6 to 8% um, rate. So if you sent out 100 uh, smolts out of, out of the Miramichi, you would get six or eight adults back. Um, and the smolt run in the Miramichi was about 2 million uh, in the early 90s. That today, from smolt research, smolt tracking research, the Atlantic Salmon Federation undertakes, where we uh, live capture young smolts as they're exiting the Miramichi, the Restigouche, Grand Cascapede, and other rivers, and implant sonic tracking devices, we're able to detect survival rates out through the river, the estuary, out in the marine, uh, marine environment, and back again as adults. Survival rate today is 1% or 2% compared to the 6 or 8% just 25, 30 years ago. Um, and it's even um, more pronounced. The survival rate is, is decreased at an even more alarming rate on the other side of the pond. And we actually helped uh, the Atlantic Salmon Trust and others with the technology to, to, to undertake their work on in Scotland where they're tracking smolts as well. So we've been We've been doing that in um, in rivers here in Canada now for the last 25, 30 years, and we are actually uh, working at Greenland. So Greenland is where all the large salmon that leave North American rivers, they head out through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, Labrador Sea, get to Greenland and spend two, three, four years there feeding, um, getting fat on the capelin and sand eels and krill before coming back to spawn. We're tagging, live capturing and tagging adult salmon at Greenland and tracking them all the way back to their home river. So we're completing that whole, that whole life cycle now. And, um, uh, survival rates are stabilizing, but they're stabilizing at a very low level. Uh, most of it driven by climate change, as as you indicated earlier. Uh, our oceans are warming. In some case, cases, they're actually uh, getting a lot colder because of the accelerated melting of the uh, the polar ice cap and glaciers and so on. But that's impacting uh, forage fish survival like capeland and sand eels. It's also, in some cases, we're seeing increases in predator populations like striped bass and seals. So it is a perfect storm, uh, and most of it is climate change driven. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so when these smolts, smolts, by the way, people, if you if you don't understand, smolts are the baby salmon that are leaving as par once the par gets into spends two or three years in the river system, sometimes up to four, depending on, on the aquifer. A par is a, if you look at a baby, uh, 
a par six, five, six inch uh, Atlantic salmon. Uh, they look just like a brown trout. They're almost impossible to dissect from a brown trout. And uh, that's why this, you know, I in my Nexus book, the Salmo connection between brown trout and Atlantic salmon, pretty much the same fish that uh, just a divergent tree. Atlantic salmon went to the ocean to find a life survival strategy where brown trout stay in the rivers and yes there are brown trout that go to the ocean but they are not the thoroughbreds the thoroughbreds that atlantic salmon are that travel long distances to far off places like greenland and faroe islands um they don't travel they're not 25 clocked at 25 miles per hour fish um brown trout will usually stay in closer to the shorelines and feed closer in where whereas the Atlantic salmon developed a very strong life survival strategy of marauding the oceans in search of what it is. And it's finely tuned into the ocean's currents. It's finely tuned into the magnetic field of the earth. Uh, it also, with its pineal gland, has the ability to to use light from the Milky Way and light from star systems. The scientists uh, uh, Navy, our Navy has been studying Atlantic salmon for a long time because they are more than a creature. They are they are a universal creature. They they are something as you know. We look at the whales, we look at cetaceans, we look at you know animals of being maybe predecessors of man with their thinking and their ability. Um, Atlantic salmon are right there with them. Their ability to do what they do is absolutely amazing. And their scent, they could pick up a scent in, in 100 parts per million, five parts per million. It's crazy what they do. Um, so when you take this and you disrupt their million years uh, evolution to to absorb their their environment, to the 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 temperature regimes constituate the way they migrate through the ocean. And now you're disrupting this. And then you they come back to river systems that have droughts and floods and floods wreaking havoc on spawning gravel. And then and then droughts they can't get upriver. And right now we're what are we looking at? We're looking at when is the run going to start? I don't know. It's going to be two months early. It's going to be two months late. It's going to be this. This is all affecting Atlantic salmon and it's affecting every migratory fish species, i.e. steelhead, i.e. sea run brown trout, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at that, them going in the ocean, you have less plankton, you know, you, you have less plankton in the oceans now with climate change. There's not those small copiapods, those little mice of shrimp, those crustaceans uh, that this smolts haven't, you know, have to have enough food to dine on. So this is one big problem. And you're seeing this on your Canadian side also. You're seeing the the, the amount of this, Food, once they get to a certain size, yes, capelin's there, herring's there, but are capelin and herring and those things in the numbers that they used to be? What's your take on that whole thing, Bill? Uh, well, the quick answer is no, they're not. Um, you know, and, and a couple of things. So capelin herring are, are nowhere near the numbers that they used to be, and they are um, very important food sources. Capelin, one of the most important food sources for, for Atlantic salmon. The other thing, again, climate change-driven, uh, when you look at the capelin assessments that are done in Canada by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, over the last couple of decades, the average size of the capelin has gotten about 30% smaller, uh, which means, okay, uh, a lot less energy. Um, so now salmon have to find 30% more capelin just to get the same calorie intake and, and energy that they used to uh, but there are so many fewer uh, capelin that it's 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 difficult to find. So um, it's 
you know, it's like that's that sweater where you pull on one thread. Everything's connected, and yeah. um, the, that whole sweater can become unraveled. So, Atlantic salmon conservation is really all about um, ecosystem conservation, and not just the fresh water, not just the marine environment. It's all connected. So you take a healthy Atlantic salmon river, of which we have lots, uh, Marguerite River in Cape Breton as an example. You've got a healthy forest around that river. Uh, the river stays in, in good shape. The water stays cold and clean. The estuary is healthy out into the marine environment. It's that canary in the coal mine. You don't have a healthy salmon run unless you have a healthy forest surrounding that watershed. You don't have a healthy salmon run unless the estuary is in good shape and there's no pollution, there's no open net pen salmon farms. And you need that marine environment as well. So the Atlantic salmon are... Uh, I mean, they really are a keystone indicator canary in the coal mine species, uh, you know, from the highlands of uh, Cape Breton or the rest of Goosh all the way out to Greenland, 2,000 kilometers, where they spend two or three or four years and they make their way back, not just to any river in, in Canada or, or Maine, but to the exact same river and in many cases, the exact same stretch river where they were hatched. It's a pretty miraculous story. Um you know, it, it's the, the Atlantic salmon migration is as exciting and inspiring as, you know, any migration on Earth. Yeah, it's uh, it's truly is uh, a, a universal fish because its connection to everything is so is so amazing. And Capelin, by the way, people are, are sort of like a small sardine. Um, and um, there, there's, you know, the, the, the eels and, and the, the Sargasso Sea and all the things all come together and fuse together for these fish. And this is a life survival strategy that is based on millions of years. I mean, you know, Salmo originated millions of years ago. And, and how this creature has to deal with all that's going on today is truly mind-boggling. You know, as we sit there in our car and drive our car and you're relying on our, our, on our navigation coming from our apple to turn down this street and turn down that street could you imagine what it'll hang salmon thousands of miles out and seek and come back to within you know 50 feet or 100 yards of the gravel that it, it came on that is a that that's a that's a universal being that's a, it's a spiritual type of fish and that's why we owe it to that fish as part of our humanity on earth but on that note we're going to take a little break here um, we are with Bill Taylor with the Atlantic Salmon Federation, and we are talking the plight of Atlantic salmon civilizations founding fish and how we could be a part of their preservation and their future. We will be right back. Abel Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish 
like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them. It's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at able reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I've had an emotional attachment to Orvis since I was a little boy growing up in the Niagara frontier with my paper route and with my hard-earned money I saved up my money to buy one of the first Orvis graphite rods that came out. To this day and over the decades, I still collect their Orvis graphite rods like the Trico, the Spring Creek, the Far and Fine, the Beaver, and I still fish them. I was an Orvis pro for 20 years in my guiding career that I still guide today. And during that time, they asked me to write a book for Orvis called the Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lake Salmon and Steelhead. It's an amazing rod, the new Helios, and when they first sent me the blanks for the Helios, I asked them, where are they going with this rod and what do you want to do with it? And they basically said to build the finest graphite rod that is made, and they sure did. Today's Helios 3, the D is the faster tip flex rod, and the F version is the more moderate rod, the mid flex. If you want the finest fly rod to be casted today, get the Helios 3. I use it every day and I will continue to use it. I can't say enough superlatives about a company like Patagonia. Their designs, their style, their function, their quality, everything they do is amazing for the mountain climber, for the skier, for the surfer, for the fly fisher. I've been a Patagonia pro for over 30 years and I've lived their clothing lifestyle. Practically every piece of clothing I have is Patagonia. My whole family has absorbed their lifestyle and my son, Peter, who is so enamored with the Patagonia lifestyle, worked in their Patagonia corporate store in Washington, D.C. Yvonne Chouinard is an avid spay caster, an Atlantic salmon uh, aficionado, steelheader. He started and pioneered a Tenkara movement here in, in the North America and he embodies the company and he's given so much of this company to the earth and to the public. When you buy Patagonia, you give back to the planet. And this summer I've been really enjoying their lightweight waders in this hot weather we've had. And I warn their waders from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego. Please give back to the earth, buy Patagonia, and you will never ever for forget the quality of this product. Welcome back. We are with this Mr. Bill, Sir Bill Taylor from the Atlantic Salmon Federation. We're talking about the plight of Atlantic salmon, civilization's founding fish and most fish loved to death by humanity and all of us. Um, everybody loves salmon and everybody wants to know more about salmon. And 
Uh, we are here to answer those questions. And uh, like I said, we had several other podcasts that went deeper, deeper into the fishing for them. We were, you know, one thing about you being a fisherman and, 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 and fly fishers and any kind of fisher at all is that eventually you become a conservationist and you become a lover of what you want, whether it's Ducks Unlimited or Trout Unlimited or Atlantic Salmon Federation or or, you know, hunters or National Rifle Association, whatever it is, you love what you do and you love the fact that you have the ability to fish for these beautiful fish of creation. And um, you eventually become a conservationist and you get more and more. The more you love, the more you want to conserve these fish. And what with, with Atlantic salmon, um, you know, there's, you know, people have always thought of the perception of them being an elitist fish. And we're going to, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but I just want to continue on the thought of climate change. And, and we're, we're beating this drum hard because I'm watching it happen today. I'm watching all of three feet of snow melt in two days, which I've never seen before. Uh, I'm seeing stoneflies hatch in January. I'm, I'm seeing this and this is just going on. And yes, we've had El Nino's, but the, these things are accelerating and how's it it affect doesn't affect us because we live in control houses with nice thermostats and we get into warm cars with our apple play and we do this and we do that but to a fish that relies on every every possible detail of nature to 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 have its life survival strategy like Atlantic salmon uh it's a whole different ball game so you know we have the thing missing at sea and you know, are we producing? We have enough food for these for these smolts when they get out there, and once they get bigger, they tend to be okay. But here again is lies the other problem: the prey predator relationships have gone berserk, and uh, they've gone berserk in the Great Lakes here. Uh, they've gone berserk out in the oceans. Uh, they're having a big problem in Europe with it, especially in the UK. Um, you start having cormorants come up rivers where they normally weren't. Cormorants could swallow grills. They could swallow 18-inch grills like no problem. You you see these grills. I saw a picture of a of a cormorant on uh, one of the rivers in in Scotland that had like a like a pretty big size grill stuck in its throat all the way down. And and you're seeing otters coming into systems. You're seeing mergansers more often. You're seeing you know otters in headwaters of a small brook that is a spawning uh, area for Atlantic salmon or steelhead or sea run browns could wreak havoc uh, on what they could do with with uh, par in the river. And uh, so these things are getting out of balance. And why that's getting out of balance, um, sharks coming in systems now. So not only have orcas that have always been a big problem, um, uh, and and now they're attacking boats. Thank God, let them attack boats rather than Atlantic salmon. But um, you know, you got terns, you got lampreys, you got. So not only do they have to fight survival of climate and and the in the uh, in the regulation of the water systems and the osmosis and things of that nature of temperature regime, one degree Celsius changes, but. Now they're throwing another big slap in the face when they have to deal with predators that weren't there as much as early as 20, 30 years ago. Um, and we're going to talk about that river that begins with an M a little bit after this. Um, that's a very big river in New Brunswick. But, um, you know, so how do you guys see that? And 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 is there any... I think the big problem that we have is how do we deal with government agencies that protect these creatures 
And you and we know very well that this creature needs to be called a little bit because it's out of control, like cormorants, and they're and they're diving into these estuaries now in big numbers. Um, how how are we gonna? How do you guys deal with? Hey, government, we could we lift this ban on this one thing? Uh, what's ASF doing? Can you do anything about it? Well, so, so the Atlantic Salmon Federation, most of our work uh, is in eastern Canada and the, the state of Maine, where, where we're located. We we do work throughout the North Atlantic and and partner with our sister organizations like the North Atlantic Salmon uh, Fund and Atlantic Salmon Trust. Um, but in North America, the um, the two uh, predators that are wreaking the most havoc. Um, striped bass principally on the miramichi river which we can talk about in a minute now, the seal population is the largest that it's ever been in recorded history so uh, we're talking 10 11 12 million seals out there um you know from river mouths all the way out in, into the labrador sea and uh, they i mean they eat everything they don't focus just on salmon but they're certainly having a uh, a significant impact on salmon uh i was part of um the minister's advisory committee on on seals actually atlantic salmon uh seal task force atlantic salmon atlantic seal task force uh in canada just a few years ago and we listened to concerns from um you know, recreational fishers, not just for salmon, but other fishers as well, uh, commercial fishers, uh, lobster fishermen, uh, fishing unions, and so on. Huge concern in fishing communities about the um, skyrocketing uh, seal population and the impact that the seals were having on a host of species, including Atlantic salmon. So that's a, a very real problem. And then there's in the Miramichi, which is the largest, most productive Atlantic salmon river in Canada, uh, runs through the middle of New Brunswick. It's 800 kilometers long, just a huge, huge uh, watershed with all kinds of wonderful tributaries um, and is home to the only known area in the Gulf of St. Lawrence where striped bass spawn. So striped bass have always been in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Striped bass have always been in the Miramichi. Uh, the population of striped bass was down to fewer than 5,000 individual fish as recently as 2002. Canada did the right thing at the time by putting it on Canada's endangered species list, which is the uh, SARA species uh, at risk list. Um, but since 2002, so only 20 years ago, the population has gone from less than 5,000 spawning striped bass to closer to a half million spawning striped bass. And in 2017, the population was up around a million. Um, so there's no uh, there's no risk of extinction for striped bass. There used to be a commercial fishery for for striped bass in Miramichi Bay, Gulf of St. Lawrence. That was closed down in the 90s. Um, the Atlantic Salmon Federation has advocated to Fisheries and Oceans Canada, which is our management agency, federal government management agency for all um, all all uh, anadromous fish, commercial fish, marine fish in in Canada. Um, we've worked with local First Nations to open up a commercial fishery, reopen a commercial fishery for striped bass. That is helping. There's a very lucrative um, recreational fishery as well with all kinds of people uh, participating in recreational fishing for striped bass. So uh, between 
the commercial fishery, the recreational fishery, um, we do see the striped bass population coming down, but just ever so modestly. There needs to be further steps taken. There needs to be, um, the federal government needs to facilitate um, maybe other First Nations participating in a commercial fishery for striped bass. Um, you know, and it's not a matter of the Atlantic Salmon Federation wanting to wipe the striped bass or in the Miramichi, uh, you know, off the face of the earth. It's it's bringing that ecosystem back into balance. There's always been striped bass, just never in the the abundance that we see today. And this is at the same time that Atlantic salmon populations are at a very low ebb in the Miramichi. And from the research that the Atlantic Salmon Federation has done uh, tracking smolts in the Miramichi, we know that striped bass predation on outgoing smolts uh, is at an all-time high. So prior to um, um, the increase in striped bass abundance in the 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14 years, outgoing smolt survival in the Miramichi was running about 70 or 80 percent. And today yeah. it's down to 5 percent. And we know from the research that the number one uh, problem is, is striped bass predation. The other thing with the striped bass is so they, they're spawning in the Miramichi, the mouth of the Miramichi, at the exact same time, end of May, early June, that the smolts are leaving. So that's a perfect storm. Uh, but then once the striped bass um, complete their spawning, many of them head back out into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and some go right and head off to Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. Some go left and head up to the Gas Bay or whatever. But they are congregating in the mouths of other salmon rivers and predating on par and actually moving up the river and, and, and eating par as well. So um, they're a huge, huge problem. The number one problem impacting the great Miramichi watershed today, but they're also an increasing problem in other areas where they never used to be. So, and some of that is climate change driven and uh, and some of it is a lack of action on the part of our federal government to effectively manage the species. Yeah, uh, that's a very good uh, evaluation. So we're, let's, let's deal with this Miramichi thing. Um, you know, it, it's, I have a lot of clients uh, and that, that I still guide and they used to fish the Miramichi and, and they said back in the day how incredible the Miramichi was. I got to fish the Miramichi once. I spent a lot of time, uh, I spent most of my time up in Gaspé, Quebec, um, fishing the rivers, the Grand Cascopee, the Petit, the Bonaventure, and then up by, by the town of Gaspé, the York, Dartmouth, Pabos, St. Jean, uh, the Grand Riviere, um, you know, so, um, but the Miramichi was always that heartfelt wonderful place that a lot of Americans went and fished. Uh, it was always some of the first Atlantic salmon were caught on the Miramichi by Americans. And, uh, you know, it, so many great families came there, the Duncans, the the flies, the green machine, the, you know, the, the various harrowing dry flies, I mean, wet flies. Um, it, it had such a noble thing. And for it to have such a catastrophic fall so quickly was devastating. And it was, it was like that, you know that tear in the eye that happened when you when you heard about there's no more fish on the Miramichi, and 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 bad news spreads quickly. Good news doesn't doesn't. It takes a long time for good news to get around because nobody likes good news. Everybody likes bad news. And and when the Miramichi hit, uh, how did you guys? Uh, I mean, didn't it affect you guys a lot? I mean, it just seemed like it was just such a downer. Well, absolutely. Um... 
you know, the Miramichi, it's a huge river system with with dozens of wonderful tributaries that are major salmon rivers in their own right. Many of the tributaries in the Miramichi, like the Little Southwest, Northwest, Dungarvan, Bartholomew Canes, are, you know, major salmon rivers with runs traditionally as large or larger than full river systems on, on the Gas Bay or in Cape Breton Island. So uh, it's also, the Miramichi is also uh, home to some of the uh, um, largest stretches of purely public uh, water, public access uh, in New Brunswick. Um, so you've got, you know, a lot of people that would fish the Miramichi, um no question that it probably has more camps, private clubs, outfitting operations. I'm going to say than just about all the other salmon rivers in, in Canada combined. That might be a bit of an overstatement, but it'd be pretty darn close. The Miramichi is such a vast yeah. river system. So you've got this huge outfitting private camp um, component with lots of people uh, fishing, lots of people working in the camps as guys and, and uh, you know, camp staff and cooks and the camps buying all their groceries locally and getting their boats and motors fixed mo uh, locally and so on. And then you've got all this public water where the average New Brunswicker would go to fish. And the run on the Miramichi has gone from 150,000 in the mid 1990s to 25 or 30,000 fish the last couple of years. So that's a huge decline. 25, 30,000 fish is still quite a run of Atlantic salmon. Um, so the river's far from dead. Um, the glass is more than half full. We just have to do the right thing and manage the striped bass population, do a better, and it's not just the striped bass. I mean, that's the number one threat, but there are some uh, forestry issues, clear-cutting issues on, on the Miramichi. Uh, it's in the southern part of the Salmon's Range, so climate change is impacting uh, the Miramichi as well. One of the things the Atlantic Salmon Federation is doing is um, identifying cold water habitat, cold water pools, cold water seeps, and, and putting protections around them, working with the New Brunswick government so that uh, the river is going to run cold, keep, uh, clean and cold and provide both juvenile and adult salmon with sanctuary during those warm water periods. But um, again, you know, just to come back to striped bass, which is the number one um, threat to uh, to wild Atlantic salmon on the Miramichi, uh, it's the uh, Canadian government, the federal uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans that have to come to terms and have to make some tough decisions and um, just bring some balance back to that system. There needs to be an increase in the commercial fishery. There needs to be an increase in quota. Federal government has to facilitate uh, the First Nations commercial fisheries. Uh, there should be uh, increased bag limits for recreational fishermen, uh, the slot size, which is a very narrow slot size, both in the commercial and recreational fishery for striped bass and the Miramichi needs to be expanded. Um, I know I've got reports from friends and camp managers on the Miramichi where in the run of a week, they will catch more striped bass than they will Atlantic salmon. So you've got salmon pools that are filled with striped bass and every single striped bass that's legally caught above the head of tide by a, a fly fisherman fishing for salmon, regardless of the size of that striped bass, regardless of the daily limit, they should be allowed to kill that fish because the only thing that fish is doing up there in the, you know, um, Suter's Pool in the Miramichi or Rocky Brook Pool in the Miramichi, it's up there to eat trout and salmon par. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> leads us into another interesting question. Um, uh, there is an, there's movement now 
it's always been there and it, and it's it's getting stronger and stronger um this nativist movement this indigenous movement uh you're probably very familiar with it um it's an operation based out of Maine with my good friend uh Bob uh and and it's it's got a lot of merit to it um and I've had some knockdown drag out fights on my podcast with Mr. Bob Mallard and and talking about you know you know, and we got a big fight over this Miramichi thing. And he was, uh, you know, I, I love brown trout. I wrote a book about brown trout. Um, I, it was the first fish I caught. Uh, it's, uh, you know, being from where I was in, in, in Poland, it was our, our native strongi, our little trupak. Uh, it was our fish. Um, and um, I love brown trout. And uh, what the nativist movement is trying to do is saying, well, you know, right? If if it's a wild brook trout stream, brown trout should not be there. Um, if if rainbow trout are invading the waters of Ireland and Scotland, we need to eliminate them because brown trout only need to be there. But here in the United States, in Canada, whatever, if 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 that was a brook trout stream, then we should eradicate the brown trout in favor of the brook trout. So we'll go and roten on the stream and get rid of the brown trout. Um, and out west in Colorado, they have bounties out for fish. Uh, you get $25 for every brown trout you kill and throw onto the bank, which is, you know, to a, such a beautiful fish. Most fly fishermen uh, love brown trout. It's like the, it's the creme de la creme fish. It's the selective fish, the snooty fish that takes a fly. And then, you know, if a river should only have, uh, you know, we should eliminate the rainbow trout out of these rivers. So the, the the series now is sort of playing God with you go into that river, eradicate the species that comes in. And, um, you know, and I love Atlantic salmon. And Bob was saying to me, you know, well, what about the Miramichi, Matt? Are you, you know, are, are you in favor of eradicating, you know, who's playing God here? Um, and uh, shouldn't we allow uh, evolution to take its course and let bass, uh, do what they want to do because that's just the way nature's going. And, uh, you know, how do we play God with it? And who are you to say that bass is not allowed to be in that river, et cetera, et cetera. So we get into these fights of whose fish is better, not not better, but whose fish should be allowed to live, whose fish should be pulverized and turned into fish meal and rotten known. And, um, and then we get into that whole rotten known thing. And, uh, What's the Atlant? I know Trout Unlimited's um, uh, take on that is indigenous first, uh, wild first, indigenous first, and then everything else. When I had uh, Mr. Kirk Dieter from Trout Unlimited on, um, how does Atlantic Salmon Federation? Do you feel like you're doing harm to striped bass? And are the striped bass people getting pissed off that you're trying to target their? Well, fish? so so Where let me, you go? yeah, just just yeah, no, good 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 question, uh, Matt. Um, the point with striped bass is that they are a native species. So they are native to the Miramichi. They've always been there. Um, when I was a kid um, living on, we had a, a cottage on the uh, Shediac Bay, Gulf of St. Lawrence, and I would fish for striped bass. They were fish that had spawned to the Miramichi, and then they're out in the Gulf of St. Lawrence swimming around. Uh, Excuse me. So there was a, a recreational fishery uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. There was a, a small commercial fishery for striped bass. Striped bass have always been in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Striped bass have always spawned in the Miramichi. But their, their numbers were never <clears throat> even close to what they are today. 
So it's all about bringing balance back to uh, to the Miramichi ecosystem, Gulf of St. Lawrence ecosystem. There's a definite and important place for, for striped bass. Looking at historical numbers, looking at the research the Atlantic Salmon Federation has done, our scientists believe that uh, to bring equilibrium to the Miramichi ecosystem is probably about uh, a, a population of 100,000 spawning striped bass would be about the right number. Um, that with that number, you would probably increase smolt survival heading, young salmon heading out of the Miramichi from the current 5% to about 50%, which would begin the salmon, the adult recovery again. Um, as I said earlier, the, um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans tells us now that the striped bass, spawning striped bass population in the Miramichi is at about 500,000. So five times more than the, what we need for an equilibrium. Um, there's another uh, bass impacting the headwaters of the Miramichi, which is smallmouth bass, which are not right. native to the Miramichi, which right. were illegally transported and planted by, you know, probably some fisherman on Miramichi Lake who thought he'd make Miramichi Lake his own little private um, smallmouth bass lake. Uh, smallmouth bass got out of the lake down through uh, a brook that runs into the Miramichi, and now those we bass have, pro people. So those bass, those bass pro. People. I'm not sure. Who, I'm not going to point any fingers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Say that uh, you know the individual that did that, you know, probably did it unknowingly, probably unintended consequences. But smallmouth bass um, could potentially alter the Miramichi ecosystem completely, and and that's not a good thing. So. You know, yes, the Atlantic Salmon Federation believes strongly that Miramichi Lake should be eradicated. Smallmouth bass should be eradicated from Miramichi Lake with using rotenone. Um, but when it comes to the striped bass population, we believe strongly it's a native fish. It's always been there. It's just bring some balance back to the population so that Atlantic salmon, and it's not just Atlantic salmon, um, striped bass are ferocious feeders. They've done a big number um, on the uh, world-class sea trout fishery in, in the Miramichi, Canes yeah. River and, and, and some others. Yeah. Um, they've done a, um, had a huge impact on important forage fish like smelt. Smelt is one of the most important forage species for um, adult salmon known as kelts. After they've spawned in the fall, they've spent the winter under the ice in the spring. When the kelts salmon start heading out back to the ocean, smelt are the number one forage fish. And our smelt population in the Miramichi is way down. The herring population is way down. That's all driven by overpredation by a huge number of striped bass that needs to be brought into balance. Yeah, and um, Miramichi. Another question. Uh, that's a very good question. How what? Do you, how what's your take on on fishing for uh, for black salmon? What's your what's what's your whole con? Uh, well, your whole spirit. Your 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 personal look. Your you know the from a administration's look. You know some people really think that's really bad. Some people think it's kind of it's okay. How do you guys feel? Well. Um... So, you know, personally, how I feel is I've done it a couple of times. Uh, it doesn't float my boat. It's not my, my cup of tea. Um, but there's also been a, a fair amount of research done on the impact of fishing for kelts and kelt survival and so on. And I think that's what we have to focus on is, is, is the science. And <clears throat> surprising to me, and, the, and this research was done 20 years ago, surprising to me, um, Kelt survival 
from catch and release, hook and release, is actually as high or higher than um, catching and releasing a salmon caught in the summertime. And when you think about it, okay, there's a couple of things here. The rivers are very, very cold. You're fishing for kelts in April and early May. The water is high, the water is cold, there's a lot of oxygen. The other thing is the uh, kelts reserves, um, you know, muscles have not been recuperated. It's still very much underweight. They don't fight anywhere near as hard as a summer run Atlantic salmon. So you've got the river, which is cold and full of oxygen. You've got a salmon that only takes a couple of minutes to bring in as opposed to 20 or 30 minutes to bring in. So it's not exhausted uh, to the point that a, uh, perhaps a summer uh, fish caught is. So from a scientific point of view, the survival rate's very, very high. How can you take a stand against it? It, it provides some enjoyment for people that like to do it. Uh, people right. have to hire guides. It's it's a time when the camps yeah. aren't really operating, making much money. So there's an economic component, and it has minimal impact on the resource. So uh, from that standpoint, absolutely a-okay with it. It's just not something that I necessarily enjoy doing. Yeah. So uh, for our listeners, um, black salmon is fishing for them in the springtime when they're leaving the rivers after they've been in the pools of what ice up, you know, what used to be ice up. I don't think there's going to be any ice up this year because it's so warm now. So I think ice up is a, is a concept that we will read about only in books, but um, yeah, it's, it's when they're, they should be going out to sea and start gaining weight. And we're, we're pulverizing one more time because we're humans and we could do that. We, we, we don't just hit them once. We, we always go for a second slug um being uh, the people that we are sometimes but anyways you know that's a personal opinion but if the science supports it it's you you be the judge of that and you you make your own cup of tea you know i'm going back to this this climate issue with these fish you know no water no water uh no water um there's been a shitload of droughts lately and there's been a drought almost like every other year on the east coast um it's 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 been crazy and um there's no stability to to the to the water flow to the regime to to the flows of rivers anymore you know when i was going to iceland um just before covid um i you know arnie was telling me arnie balderson who's his my uh who's the lee wolf of iceland was saying much we need water please bring water and this this is iceland man this is where there's always water it's there's always glacials mellings it, and they the rivers were dry. And then last summer when I did the podcast with Arnie uh, from the Hitaro River, um, there was no water in the rivers. And it was like this this thing's getting out of control. And how does smolt survival and how does how does salmon survival dealing with um, you know dealing with warm water in pools? And one thing I'm always impressed with is um, how well. The Zach and and people zone ecological control, which are the people that monitor the salmon rivers, uh, and my good friend that does the scuba diving counts on the York River. Uh, he's a game warden also, and uh, you know they we monitor. You do you do counts of fish in pools, so you go down and see how many fish, how many spawning class fish are in these pools. Do we need to close the river down because it's getting too hot? Uh, do we do we need to manage? even better on some of the other rivers outside of the, out of the Quebec rivers, because these droughts are going to persist. Uh, they're going to keep going and, and, the, and droughts are devastating to, to reproduction because you're running out of water. You're, you're spawning on dry gravel. And then 
you get a drought after the spawn in, in late winter and the drought persists and, you know, salmon will trickle up to tiny, tiniest little pieces of water to get the eggs in the gravel. And then next thing, these things are dried up or they freeze completely in the winter because there is no water in these systems. So you get the fluctuating from, from a, from warm weather to cold weather. And then you go to, to 30 degrees in winter, Fahrenheit to, to below zero. Um, this is a big thing. How is, so there, there's a couple of questions there. Drought, droughts we've kind of uh, entertained, but what I'm getting at is um, how is logging going on your Atlantic salmon rivers? And when, you know, you fish the Grand Cascopedia and you fish on the highway and you fish upper lost and you're fishing right next to these monster logging trucks coming down the rivers and, with their with their with their moose uh, rails in the front because they're bouncing moose off their rails like they're they're ping pong balls. Um, how how is logging having an impact? How are you guys dealing with logging from an Atlantic Salmon Federation? How's that going? Yeah. So I mean, no question that that um, logging you know forestry practices in some areas, not not all, and in, in some watersheds are a real problem. And uh, you've got to have a healthy uh, forest surrounding a watershed so that you have, um, you know, slow, when it rains hard, the river rises slowly, it drops slowly, rivers stay cool, the forest provides shade. Another problem with the poor forestry or intensive forestry are the roads that are built um, and all the mud on those roads that, that can wash into rivers and so on. Um some areas of Quebec, Cascopedia is one where you can, it's it's a real eyesore. The forestry, uh, intensive forestry has impacted that river in a, in a large way. Siltation, river goes up and down quite quickly, uh, can warm quickly. Other areas like the, the St. Jean River, tip of the Gaspé, where the uh, rivers are in provincial parks and there's very little forestry. The rivers are, are healthy. They run cool. They they don't have those big fluctuations with, you know, high water when it rains and then the river uh, dropping very, very quickly. It's all about, you know, stable runoff and, and you want lots of, uh, you know, young trees and mosses and, and so on around the seeps and the springs and to keep the river cool, the tributaries cool, the small streams running into rivers. Um Canada now has a, a national program, and um, in, in, uh, in similar in the U.S., where we're looking to protect 30% of our land mass, 30% of our marine, marine environment by the year 2030. Um, not every province in eastern Canada uh, is uh, is anywhere near that at this point in time. New Brunswick, so the Miramichi, Restigouche, and the Piscuit Rivers. Um, New Brunswick was one of the poor, poor performers up until a couple of years ago. The Atlantic Salmon Federation has worked closely with the New Brunswick government to put land protections in place specifically around our salmon rivers, tributaries on the Miramichi, tributaries on the Restigouche, tributaries uh, on the Nipisiquit. And just as an example, you know, guidelines, regulations for forestry in New Brunswick on the main stem of a river, forest companies could only cut down to 90 meters uh, within, the, within the watershed. So 90 meters from the river's edge and only 30 meters on, on tributaries. Well, now, thanks to uh, the work of the Atlantic Salmon Federation and New Brunswick government, other conservation organizations here, um, it's 500 meters, so half a kilometer built around some of those cold water tributaries running into the Miramichi, Restigouche, and the Pacific River. And we're doing similar work with, with governments in Quebec and governments in Nova Scotia as well. So 
Um, progress is being made there, and uh, there's still some issues, obviously, and, and, and still uh, you know work that's that's got to be done. But um, it's getting better, and and that's going to be absolutely key uh, with climate change, and you know seeing what's going on. Um, I mean, you mentioned the droughts, which we've had lots of droughts the last decade, um, but just last year, so 2023. Uh, Eastern Canada, the, the the problem wasn't droughts. The problem was that we had huge rains almost week after week after week. And, and that's one of the things that climate um, scientists are telling us. In, in Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, uh, one of the impacts of climate change is actually going to be increased precipitation during the summer. So that it's not necessarily going to be a, a drought problem that we're faced with, but um, too much water too often and and that causes all kinds of problems too i mean salmon love water but they don't like the rivers running up into the trees and uh, yeah. uh it creates problems for juvenile salmon and and finding sanctuary it creates problems in the fall when it comes to spawning and other salmon spawning in the right places so um you know climate change is you know, you know yes warming climate but there's all kinds of other impacts that that come with that as well yeah um and then yeah so th these are things that are it's 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 there's just no the 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 the, the odometer is going in every direction here one minute we we're, we're getting hit with droughts here like crazy in Michigan we had two two severe three severe years of droughts here in the summertime east coast uh New York Pennsylvania uh, onward down it's been drought ridden uh the Canadian Maritimes probably going to get see more of uh, precipitation from some of the hurricanes, but the hurricanes come through and then we get a lot of water. The rivers go to flood stage and then next week they're back in drought stage. So this is back to the logging and some of the issues that, you know, the instability, everything runs out. There's no retention into the ground system. We're sucking more groundwater out of out of the system because of our development and where every time you build a strip mall, there goes a whole aquifer and that's what's happening in Canada. It's happening in the United States too. So these are huge issues. Uh, we got two more issues to cover. Um, one is um, live release and catch and release. This has always been sort of a sore spot um, and it's always been a sore spot with Atlantic salmon. Um, there has been lots of killing of Atlantic salmon. We love their flesh. It is part of our culture to kill Atlantic salmon. Um, you know, even Lee Wolf, his one regret before he died was that, man, I wish I would have let more Atlantic salmon go. I put one too many in the pot, as we say, as the Canadians say, as as all the, um, you know, the old timers say, we got to take one back to the lodge for the pot. All people have done that. Um, you know, we use tailors, you know, we've used fish clubs, we've used all kinds of things. Now we're so eco-minded and one of the big things even as recently as the early 2000s late 1900s was you know there's a big battle between if you're going to kill fish or you're not going to kill fish and the people that kill fish were very adamant that they deserve to that's their god-given right as a quebecois as a canadian as a whatever and um you know, and when I had Topher on, he was big about that. And he was, you know, he was saying, you know, let's look at the numbers in 2020. He says, you know, the Greenland fishery in 2020 harvested 31.7 tons uh, of fish. Canada harvested, um, you know, I think it was, so uh, I'm looking here, uh, the harvest for Canadian government, 104 tons, okay? 31,000 grills, 10,000 um uh, 200 adults, uh, the First Nations, 58 tons, 
um, you know, recreational fishing, 43 tons, Labrador resident fish. These are, these are Labrador commercial fishing, 1.7 tons in the Greenland too. So are, are we, you know, we were always pointing the finger at Greenland, Greenland, et cetera. So, you know, Topher basically said, you know, who's, who's, who's the boogeyman here? Who's the bad guy? How do we balance these numbers? And, and when do we, you know, where do we stand on live release? And, you know, we, we advocated on one side because we need the funds and we need the money, and then we need to preserve adult fish spawning. So live fish, live release, catch and release has always been one dark spot, like a, like a bad thing in the Catholic Church we don't want to talk about. It's sort of that thing. And where are we today versus 20 years ago? Um, you know, I saw the head of of uh, Zek one time kill a 35 pound female and uh, it was like, you know, hey, no big deal. Um, how how do we deal with that when our leaders are killing fish? Uh, where are you guys now? Uh, there's probably been a lot of sore wounds over the time. And, and, you know, as I get into this, you know, it's more like the older crowd. It's the Scotch crowd. It's the, you know, it's the crowd that, you know, uh, the old older generation where it was okay to do that when we were in the 60s and 50s and 40s um uh, of uh, era 1950s 60s but 70s even but you know we started seeing that decline where where do you stand now today how think how much progress have you made with live release um are you very vocal about it or is it still one of those things that you really don't want to talk about unless you have to talk about it all yours bill no, well, um, so the Atlantic Salmon Federation, for as long as I can remember, uh, 30 years or more, I've been with the Atlantic Salmon Federation now, thir 36 years, and uh, <laughs> our position, our, our stated policy is, you know, we encourage, we urge all Atlantic salmon anglers to release all the large salmon and all the grilts they catch until stocks recover. That's 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 basically uh, what it is, and you got to keep in mind too that grilts are adult salmon. Adults, you know, grilts spawn, so grilts contribute to spawning escapement, just not as much as as a large salmon uh, does. Um, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island now, so the three maritime provinces, it's all catch and release. You can't kill a uh, an angler cannot cannot kill a fish, so it's it's an all catch and release fishery. Um, Newfoundland, um, there is some retention on some rivers. Some rivers are, if, if a salmon population in Newfoundland, they grade their rivers one through five. This would be Newfoundland and Labrador as well. If a, if a salmon population is not above a minimum spawning target, there, there's no fishing. So you have some rivers where there's no fishing. You have some rivers where there's just catch and release fishing or live release fishing. You have some rivers where anglers get one tag and can kill one grills for the season. And then you have some rivers where um, anglers can get two tags and kill two grills for the season. Um, and then in Quebec, uh, again, some rivers are catch and release. Some rivers are grills retention. There's a small a handful of rivers, uh, 15 or 16 rivers in Quebec, where... Uh, there's a mid-season assessment done, and if there's uh, a certain level of large salmon in the river, then there can be the retention of one large salmon. So um, 2022, so the most recent year, we've got figures for uh, anglers released 
uh, in Canada, anglers released a boat, I'm just uh, ballparking, but about 30,000 grilts and nearly 25,000 large salmon. So 55,000 salmon, 54,000 salmon released by anglers. And um, probably it would have been maybe 20,000 grilts that were killed by anglers that year and about 1,000 sa large salmon killed. All the large salmon were killed in Quebec because that's the only uh, place in eastern Canada. So uh, you've got two or three times as many salmon being released as killed. Uh, and just to come back to the Greenland piece, and uh, I have, you know, I agree with Topher for sure. I mean, I, I've had lots of discussions, negotiations with the Greenland commercial fishermen, Greenland government, and um, you know, right away, every single conversation is, look, we'll reduce our um, killing, our harvest of, of salmon, soon as you and Canada, you and the U.S. stop killing salmon, stop building dams, stop clear cutting your forests. Now. Um, the difference in all of this is that in Canada, uh, all those fish that were harvested, whether it's by anglers or indigenous fishermen, are coming from rivers that are meeting or surpassing their spawning target, and they're harvested on individual distinct stocks so that that individual stock can be managed. In Greenland, there's only one known salmon river, so all the salmon that are at Greenland feeding for two, three, four years uh, before heading back to their rivers of origin, they're not Greenland salmon. They're not salmon that have come from Greenland rivers. And they're mixing in the ocean. So when a Greenland fisherman puts a net in the ocean, he's got no way or she's got no way of focusing that fishing pressure on a healthy stock or an unhealthy stock. Um, they might be, a net could pull up fish from the Penobscot River in Maine, which is threatened with extinction, or the St. John River in New Brunswick, which is threatened with extinction, or it could be a fish from the Cascapedia, which is doing very, very well. Um, and all the salmon harvested at Greenland are large spawners, no grilts. They're all large spawners. So those are the ones that pr produce the most eggs, uh, contribute the most to spawning escapement. So there's all kinds of conservation reasons for reducing the Greenland harvest to the lowest level possible. But the Atlantic Salmon Federation makes it very clear to the, to the Greenland, the Greenland government, Greenland fishermen, that we recognize that under the Law of the Sea Convention, international treaty, the Greenlanders have a right to fish in their waters for a fair share of the resource. What they don't have a right to do is to, is to put that resource in jeopardy. So it's a matter of reducing the fishery to the lowest level possible. Uh, we have agreements with the Greenlanders to reduce their catch. We provide some financial incentives to reduce their catch. We've helped them improve the reporting, improve the real-time monitoring. Uh, the harvest at Greenland is at the lowest level it's ever been right now. It's around 30 tons a year, year after year after year. We'd like to get it down to around 20 tons. Um, it's about 300 fish per ton, so 30 tons is 9,000 large spawners, 20 tons is uh, 2,000, um, yeah, uh, yeah, 20 tons is 6,000 large spawners. Um, and we're making real progress there. And in the 16 years, over the last 30 years, the Atlantic Salmon Federation and our partner, the North Atlantic Salmon Fund, uh, have had 16 years of these conservation agreements with the Greenland fishermen. And every single year, 
that we've had those agreements in place, you see an increase in the number of large salmon back to coming back to Canadian rivers. So it works. And it's something that we just have to keep going. And over time, just like compounded interest, more large salmon coming back, more large salmon spawning, we're gonna see our, our stocks recover. Um, the indigenous fisheries, the recreational fisheries in, in Canada, as I said earlier, are all focused on healthy populations, they're monitored, they're managed on an in-river basis. Um, we'd like to see them reduced for sure. Um, the Atlantic Salmon Federation urges all anglers to reduce or, or to eliminate or to release uh, every single large salmon and grilts they catch and still stocks recover. And, and we're making progress, right? So, um, 55,000 salmon released in 2022 and only 21,000 um, killed by anglers. So. Um, I guess the the other thing to keep in mind too is we all fish for different reasons, right? Um, right. You know, you and I, Topher, um, lots of Atlantic Salmon Federation members um, are catch and release fishermen, which is great. Lee Wolf was the godfather of catch and release, um, but some folks uh, fishing public water uh, they want to take a grilt home for the pot, and if a river's healthy, so if you're fishing on the Humber River or you're fishing on the Cascopedia River or the St. John River, and that river is surpassing its spawning target, it's hard to make a conservation argument, a scientifically-based argument, for not allowing a certain number of salmon to be taken out of that river. Um, yeah, doesn't float my boat. I'm a catch-and-release angler. Always have been, always will be. But again, you know, the Atlantic Salmon Federation makes sure that we, you know, we pride ourselves in uh, building all our positions, all our policies on the best available science, evidence-based, so that if a fishery is not impacting the resource, then it's hard to make an argument against it. Yeah, I, I hear you. And uh, everybody, uh, whatever floats everybody's boat and uh, fishing is still, um, you know, still a kill sport. It's still, uh, it's still a fort where you go kill a deer or you go kill a, you go kill a salmon or you go kill a trout. Um, it's still part of it. Uh, so I guess it's what 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 the science tells you to do. You can do and you can't. And one thing nice about the Atlantic Salmon uh, Federation and all the Atlantic Salmon uh, Trust and, and NASCO and everybody, they're monitoring and ICs that gives us these counts. They, they're monitoring this on a pretty micromanaging scale. So even, you know, the, even going into the pools and doing a snorkel count of how many adults are in a spool, pool um we're getting pretty accurate pretty close to accurate numbers and we could dictate how that works so we're not just shooting shooting in the blind we're not just shooting from the hip here with a lot of these things we got a pretty good grip on it uh and on that note we're going to take a break and we are with bill taylor talking some uh, pretty incredible stuff with atlantic salmon we will be right back Books and lines have been around since Cro-Magnon Man and Neanderthal Man when they were living in caves and in the Alps in Europe trying to find out how to catch the brown trout that were in the rivers and the Atlantic salmon that were running up the hollowed waters of Europe's rivers. And to do that correctly, you need the finest quality possible. And nothing more is entitled to that quality than Angler Sport Group and their incredible portfolio of Daiichi hooks. Daiichi hooks are at the pinnacle of the hook experience from all their 
dry fly, nymph, wet fly hooks, specialty hooks. I am particularly fond of their specialty dry fly hooks uh, in the very micro minutia sizes. White gaps that allow for the hooking, like some of my favorite hooks by Partridge back in the day with Vince Marinero's Mitch hooks, but their designs today are absolutely incredible. Also, Varivas material is absolutely at the top. Their leader systems, their fluorocarbon, their colored leaders, which come in lime green and light blue and different colors, allow you to fool some of the most selective trout, some of the most selective salmon and steelhead in the world. Varivas is by far at the pinnacle. Suppleness, strength, diversity is all encompassed when you use Varivas and Daiichi hooks all at Angler Sport Group from New York. Books are the foundation of Hollowed Waters podcasts. We talk about them in reverence, all the great literature that our sport, our art form, our passion, of hollowed waters and sport of fly fishing has given us, has its strong link to where all of this has come from. The books that we have featured are in bibliographies in the Hollowed Water podcast series and in the repertoire of the many guests that we've had ever since Hollowed Waters started, starting with iconic guests like Paul Weimer's book, and Kelly Gallops and Simon Gosworth and Rick Custich and Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon books and Al Cucci and Dr. Bachman and the list goes on. But basically, what I'm trying to say here in this advertisement is that we need to pay attention to all these great books and the best way to do that is to go and sometimes dig into your Amazon or your local fly shops or your local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, and get a hold of them. Um, also, some of the books and some of the experiences I've had with books has been truly the crux of my fly fishing career, like my selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, Atlantic salmon and steelhead, and also my latest book, The Brown Trout, Atlantic Salmon Nexus, which details the history and the lore, the tactics, the techniques for these wonderful fish that we love. We would love you to go and experience more, to log in to our website and see the bibliographies we have had and explore your joy of the many authors for the many decades and perhaps centuries that have given their knowledge and their wisdom and their crafts and shared them with you. Hello listeners, this is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. We are back with Mr. Bill Taylor from the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And uh, 
I am really enjoying this talk because I am a lover of Salmo Salar, and we want you to become a lover of Salmo Salar and um, and uh, join the Atlantic Salmon Federation and be part of this. So we're going to get into our final topic here and then a couple other small details. But, you know, uh, one of the biggest problems I think that Atlantic salmon have is that they're considered an elitist fish. Uh, they're considered elitism. When you mention Atlantic salmon to somebody, uh, you 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 get this whoa, oh well, I can't afford those fish. You know, it costs three thousand dollars a day to fish in Iceland. It costs ten thousand dollars a day to fish in Russia. It costs blah blah blah. It costs money even to go up to, go up to Quebec and Canada. And blah 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 blah. So this fish is now shrouded in elitism. A lot of the elitism comes from centuries of castles and estates and and Balmoral and and you know when you had an Atlantic salmon river you built you had a castle ran was next to it and you had surfed them back in uh, centuries and centuries ago. So it, it has carried this elite stigma with it forever. And now you know, you know, how do we break that stigma? How do we, you know, you know, this King Charles fishing Balmoral, and it's only for the Ritzies, and it's always been a fish of spoken in godlike terms. You know, in Poland, we call them Wosush, and in Russian, they're called Semga. They have always had this gold, this, 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 this fish is gold. It's, you only get it once a year at Christmas, if you're lucky, and, uh, you know, how do we break that stigma and get the average Joe? The, the bell curve is society. And most of that bell curve is is that middle middle section of the bell where those people fish for bass. It's the bass pro. See, it's, it's those bass pro people, Bill. I'm telling you, they're going to put they're going to put bass in every damn Atlantic Salmon River and they're going to build a NASCAR track right next to it. Just kidding, guys. Uh -huh. I'm sure I'm going to get letters on that one. So... Go ahead. But um, so yeah, how do you how do you deal with that stigma and and how do you know you say I got I got Atlantic Sam Federation. This is the population that I'm gonna target myself to because I know I can't really break outside of that because those people don't want to hear nothing, but they want to fish for best, they want to do this, they I I you know, and so how long are we going to have galas where all the blue bloods come out and spend their money and wreck, get in their ties and drive away in their Rolls Royces? And, you know, is that a dying generation? Is the Atlantic Salmon Federation a dying uh, breed? Um, how are you combating that it's always been a blue blood sport for the rich and their offspring? And, and they've owned the camps. They've had money invested. They're part owners. You know, you've been dealing with that as long as you've been fishing for Atlantic salmon, as long as you've been with ASF. How are you breaching that gap to try to get the average Joe, to get the First Nation person, to get the get to get the person in a school in Mississauga, Ontario, to brace this? This is the big challenge that you probably fight every day. I would imagine. How how do I expand? Where's my goal for Atlantic Salmon Federation? Where do I want to see it? Are we going to be only as good as the blue bloods that support us and spend the big money for these auctions and things? Um, give me, give me your conscience. Give me your spirit on that one. Well, um, there's a lot of opportunities for Atlantic salmon anglers and, and they run the gamut. And, um, you know, certainly there's long held view that Atlantic salmon on, you know, the rivers, renowned rivers, you know, be it the rest of goose, the Cascopedia, the Moise, private camps, private water, very expensive, all of that. Um, 
we got to keep in mind that a lot of the money for conservation and a lot of the employment that's created in in those rural areas are, are thanks to those camps and the people that uh, uh, that go there and, and, and can afford all that. But there's um, there's all kinds of opportunity for Atlantic salmon angling in Nova Scotia, in Newfoundland, in New Brunswick, on the Gas Bay of Quebec that uh, does not cost an arm and a leg. So whether you're a Newfoundlander or a New Brunswicker or a school teacher, uh, whatever, there's public water, there's places to fish, there's places to go, and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And the same thing for folks that want to travel, whether it's, you know, from New England or, or, you know, south of the border or even from the UK, there's 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 opportunities for Atlantic salmon angling, particularly on, on the Gas Bay in Newfoundland and Labrador in Cape Breton Island. Uh, and in New Brunswick, where, you know, in some cases you have to hire a guide. Okay, well, that's, you know, people hire a guide for trout fishing out west. People hire a guide for for saltwater fishing, striper fishing, what have you. Um, you know, camping, staying in a hotel. You don't have to stay in the most expensive lodges. And there's hundreds of rivers. I mean, literally hundreds of rivers in eastern Canada that have healthy Atlantic salmon runs. And it's a matter, I mean... One of the uh, things the Atlantic Salmon Federation is is is, is focusing on, particularly in, you know recent years and, and going forward, is demystifying Atlantic salmon angling. I mean, there's a lot of people that think, okay, I can't figure out the the ZEC system in Quebec and and how you apply for public water, and I don't know where to find a guide, and I don't know where to stay, and so on. Um, we want more people fishing for Atlantic salmon. We want more people in the Atlantic salmon conservation tent. Um, whether they are fishing at a private club or they are camping and fishing on a public river or a First Nation fisherman, um, you know, a catch-and-kill fisherman on a river that is meeting a spawning target and is just going to take one grilts for the pot uh, or a, a total catch-and-release fisherman. Anybody who cares about Atlantic salmon, we want them part of our community. We, we want to be able to show the Canadian government, the U.S. government, that there is growing support for this fish and that our governments have to do more to make sure that the habitat's in good shape that our governments are taking a strong voice when it comes to international negotiation, at, whether it's the NASCO table or, or what have you. So it, it's about you know growing the membership, growing the community, and finding a place for everybody. Yeah, and um, I think one big priority could be Maine, because Maine, if we get our rivers back in Maine and we could get more Americans driving from Chicago to go fish Maine for Atlantic salmon, um, I think Maine would be a very big thing. And the fact that we're getting close to about a thousand fish returning now to, to the Penobscot and all the work you've done with the dams of Virze and all these, all the places that you've been removing dams and constantly doing dam removals and rev restoration on Maine rivers is a huge one. I think uh, I've, I've been on Martin Silverstone, the editor of, uh, Atlantic Salmon Journal to, to encompass my beloved landlocked Atlantic Salmon more, not just ocean fish. I think landlocked Atlantic Salmon are has the ability for everybody to catch. We have a tremendous Atlantic Salmon fishery, uh, a landlocked Atlantic Salmon fishery here in Michigan. And my client and I hold the world record landlocked Atlantic Salmon, 27 pounds here. So now we're stocking Atlantic Salmon in Lake Huron, having a tremendous fishery there. So there, there's more growth in the area. We need more of that bell curve, the more of the common man 
the common person to absorb it. The person that eats salmon in the restaurant needs to absorb this. That was we started in the in the beginning. So these are sort of the things that we have to go uh, approach more. Uh, let's talk about goals and where you want to be. Um, you know, you came up with this new wild salmon watershed. Uh, watersheds is a new freshwater Atlantic salmon conservation program. Give us a little hint about what that whole thing is all about. Sure. So Wild Salmon Watershed, uh, it, it's a major program. Um, the Atlantic Salmon Federation's largest freshwater program, um, and it's uh, in its infancy um, and growing uh, at, at, at a very exciting rate. Um, it's all about protection. Um, so for years and years and years, the Atlantic Salmon Federation conservationists in general, uh, a lot of the effort, a lot of the attention, a lot of the money would go towards conserving the few remaining most threatened populations of whether fish, fish or wildlife for all for all the right reasons. Um, wild salmon watersheds is more about investing in large scale protections around our healthiest salmon rivers, most robust salmon runs, so that they stay that way forever. So we're looking at um, conservation programs, implementing wild salmon watershed programs in the Gas Bay, in northern New Brunswick, in Cape Breton Island, in northern uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, where our salmon runs, our salmon rivers are in really good shape so that they stay that way. Um, we're still involved in, in conservation and restoration in the state of Maine, in the southern Maritimes. But that's an expensive game. Um, I guess the, the easiest way to explain it is that um, it takes a lot less money and a lot less effort to protect what's working than it is to try and fix what's broken. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we are going to, uh, we're going to look at um, rivers today that are getting runs of Atlantic salmon, i.e. the Seine, the Seine River in Paris. There probably has been about a hundred Atlantic salmon, they're estimated maybe a thousand Atlantic salmon that have actually swim up the Seine in Paris, a polluted, probably one of the most polluted rivers in the world. Uh, rivers have been getting cleaned up tremendously. We're watching all the effluent that's coming in the rivers, the pesticides, the, you know, stuff that we've been dumping since World War II uh, in those rivers. Uh, they're getting better. Rivers off the Baltic are getting better. Somebody actually caught Atlantic salmon in London on the Thames, which is almost unheard of, one of the dirtiest rivers. Um, there is hope. Um, we might be turning the table uh, on this thing. What's your thoughts on that, Bill? I, I absolutely think we're turning the table on this thing. Um, you look at the uh, the returns of large, large salmon and grilts over the last 25 years, and as I said earlier, stable, even increasing in, in many cases. Um, the state of Maine is a fantastic success story. Um, last year, so 2023, um, the largest returns of Atlantic salmon to rivers in the state of Maine in the last uh, 15 years, um, the Penobscot River, the Kennebec River, where the Atlantic Salmon Federation is taking down dams, opening up new habitat, some of our um, cold water work, habitat restoration work, uh, river connectivity work is, is paying huge dividends. And um, interestingly, uh, my wife caught her first Atlantic salmon on the Penobscot River in the Eddington Pool in 1986. 
a 10 pounder. Um, and that was her first that she hooked and landed on her own. And <clears throat> I mean, it'd be great. I mean, just think of having Atlantic salmon fishing back in the state of Maine, you know, down, downtown Bang. <clears throat> but in that area yeah. in the Penobscot River, there, there were uh, the Eddington Salmon Club, the BC Salmon Club, the Penobscot Salmon Club. There were dozens and dozens, and on the weekends, hundreds of people fishing for, for Atlantic salmon, and they were catching fish. And um, it, it, there was a real vibe going on, almost like the Gas Bay or, or the Marguerite River, where, where people were, um, you know, just having a ball. And, and there might be 10 or 12 people in front of you. Um, you know, you had to wait your turn to rotate through the pool, but there was a lot of activity going on, and there was a real um, excitement around Atlantic salmon and and giving folks, you know, the chance to to fish right in their own backyard. And that would be wonderful to have that back again in the state of Maine, even just on a catch and release basis. Which I'm sure, you know, that that's the way it'll start. Um, but if we continue to see uh, fish returning to uh, the down east rivers like the Narragwagus, Machias, the Kanak, um the Kennebec and the Penobscot like we have over the last decade or so, I think it's a real possibility that the next 10, 15, 20 years we'll um, be able to take Atlantic salmon off the endangered species list in the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, exciting times. We're going to take our final break and then we're going to wrap things up when we come back. We are talking with Bill Taylor and we will be right back. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, 
The lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're gonna really enjoy these rods. Hello listeners, as publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are back and we are wrapping up the plight of Atlantic salmon and how these fish have been the, the, the signal in nature and the signal for us as humans on this planet to be better conservants of this planet and, um, you know, things, exciting times on all this stuff. And there was the COP26 summit in Glasgow, the climate summit, and uh, artist by the name of Joe Rossano did a beautiful glass-blown art of salmon and steelhead. And and it was there, and, it, and it's such a beautiful indicator of, in art, how these fish are our global canaries in the coal mine, because they, uh, by the way, if I, I keep using the word canary and coal, but if everybody doesn't understand what I'm saying, miners used to take canaries down into the coal mines, and when the canary would start to die, they were running out of oxygen. So that's where the slogan came from, just to clarify it, because I'm sure I'll get plenty of emails about this canary and coal mine. But anyways, and, and, the, and the police actually wrote a song called The Canary in the Coal Mine. Um, but anyways, um, so yeah, th this was a beautiful exhibit. It's They're sort of like the doomsday clock, and if we start to lose this fish, uh, it's so important. Didn't you guys like? Um, didn't you guys sponsor the exhibit and move it around? I think we we did. Our our partner, uh, the Atlantic Salmon Trust and the Atlantic Salmon Federation, as well as the Wild Salmon Center on the West Coast, were were sponsors of that exhibit. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so um, I guess uh, the, we have closing comments here. Uh, um, Bill, would you like to? Uh, where do you want to go? How could you get more people to come to Atlantic Salmon Federation? Where's your closing comments, and how do you feel about this whole thing? Well, I, I feel uh, I'm 
excited, enthused, optimistic about the future for the species. Uh, as an Atlantic salmon angler, passionate Atlantic salmon angler since I was a, a teenager, um, it's it's a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of my family's life. Um, I feel you know feel like we're heading in the right direction, and it's not all doom and gloom. There's too much darkness around Atlantic salmon. And I think some of it is just a lack of information, lack of knowledge. And that's something the Atlantic Salmon Federation, um, you know, we understand and, and the onus is on us to kind of demystify the sport of salmon angling, get more people out there fishing. Um, the more people fishing, the more people get behind the conservation effort, the more people that contribute to the Atlantic Salmon Federation so that we can do the important conservation, habitat restoration research work that we can do. But you know, just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, the more people behind uh, the fish, the more people that are writing letters to government, the more people that are making their voices heard, that'll be the impetus for our governments to to uh, actually, you know, do the right thing when it comes to uh, international negotiations and, and dealing with the predator-prey relationships and habitat restoration and making sure that governments are putting, you know, their fair share of money into the conservation restoration of the species as well. So uh, the future is looking bright, and I would encourage folks to visit our website. Um, you know, there's all kinds of fantastic information there uh, throughout the fishing seasons, angling season. There's all kinds of updates on rivers that are doing well, return rates, uh, where to go, how to get there, numbers to phone to call. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a great uh, chatting with you, Matt, and um, I hope that um, we get more people behind the Atlantic salmon conservation effort. Yes, and. Um... So this is a plea. Um, the point of this podcast is a plea uh, for every everybody uh, to join the Atlantic Salmon Federation because we are all part of the problem. We're all part of the solution. Every time we order a salmon in a restaurant, we're part of the problem and we could be part of the solution, uh, as I discussed earlier. So it's not just for Canadians. It's not just for rich people. It's not. It's for everybody. This is a fish that that will probably outlive civilization for some spots because it's adapted. But we are teetering any year now. We could go in one direction downward. And it could that spiral like it happened in 85, 86 was terrifying. And it and it was really on the verge of extinction. And we it, we could happen very quickly. So it, this is we see this bright spot now, but it could easily go south as fast as it's going better. And it's a call for you to come on board. So with that note, uh, we're going to go into our one-minute zip clips where I ask our guest all kinds of questions about his preferences. Okay, Caleb, sound the alarm. And here we go. So, Bill, you get like 15 seconds, 30 seconds to answer the question. And um, what is your favorite rod when you fish? Um, I'm a, uh, I love the uh, new loop rods, uh, the 7X. And my favorite rod is a nine foot for a seven weight. Okay. And your favorite reel, if I caught you fishing. Favorite reel, I'm, I'm, I'm a loop guy again, and um, the Opti reel. All right. Yeah, it's a beautiful reel. What about um, monofilament? Uh, are you monofilament guy? Are you a fluorocarbon guy? What are you? I'm a, uh, a traditional Atlantic salmon angler. Every single guide that you're ever going to fish with for Atlantic salmon is going to tell you to use uh, maximum chameleon liter. So uh, there's lots of folks that do really, really well with fluorocarbon and everything else, but I'm a traditionalist and I go with the uh, maximum chameleon. 
Yeah, it seems like when Atlantic salmon wants one thing about it, and I talked about a lot of my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, is once they commit to a fly, it's tough to get them to commit to a fly. And some people say, oh, I'm going Atlantic salmon fishing, but that means you're not going fishing. You're just going, you're going not catching, you're going fishing. Uh, they don't do it very often, but when they do, they do it pretty well. And so I don't think fluorocarbon really makes that much of a difference because they just, when they hit that fly, they pulverize it. Your favorite fly, if you had one fly to use for the rest of your life, what fly would it be? It would be uh, a Paul Caron stonefly, and and the reason is uh, you can fish it in so many. It, it, it's effective under almost any scenario. You can fish it wet. You can fish it dry. You can wake it. It hitches really, really well. Um, I'd want a lot of different sizes because I think that's the biggest thing with Atlantic salmon is depending on the water conditions, temperature, and height. Size is very important. Um, but also, you know, technique and being able to fish it, not just uh, down and across at a 45 degree angle. In some cases, you want it to hitch. In some cases, you want it to sink and come. Some cases, you want it to float. What um, what if you had one salmon river to fish for the rest of your life and you were like Mr. Caswell in GM Skew's novel? Um, yeah, uh, what river would it be? What river would you be stuck on and you would be happy to fish that river? Well, I, I've I've fished a lot of rivers, so um, I I'm not uh, I'm not worried about catching a lot of fish. I'm I, I'd want to spend time with family and friends on a river that I I know well and love, and that would be the lower north branch of Little Southwest Miramichi. So um, not hugely productive. Uh, the Miramichi's got lots of problems with striped bass and, and global warming and so on. But um, I'm the fourth generation of my family to uh, to fish at a camp on that river. My daughters are the fifth generation. Uh, we fish together. Uh, so I'm walking the same trails that are, you know, beat a foot down into the dirt that my great-great-grandfather walked. And I think that's pretty cool to fish those same pools. Absolutely. Um, so what was the biggest salmon you ever caught? Uh, the big, <clears throat> well, caught is... Uh, the biggest thing I ever caught, I never got my, I didn't actually get my whole hands on because it was too large to fit in the net. That was on the Rinder River. Um, gosh, would have been like 2002, three, four in Power Pool, a fish that uh, my guy, Jenya, uh, likened to a shark, uh, fought for 45 minutes, kept it at the head of a serious rapid just barely three or four times, got it to the net. I knew we only had one chance for it. Um, and it would not fit in the net. So uh, we estimated conservatively that it was over 40 pounds. I know for sure it was over, but we did not get our hands on it, and uh, and that's a shame. Largest one that I did land, that I did get my hands on, was carefully released, uh, measured both length and girth, and there's a formula you can use to figure out what the weight was, and that was 39 pounds, so just shy of the 40. Still looking for that 40-pounder. What river was that? That was on the Restigouche. Okay, yeah. Restigouche produces some pretty damn big fish. It's amazing. Yeah. Year to year. It's just awesome. Um, so uh, what is a bucket list for you? What is a bucket list fish and a fishery that you would love to explore? Well, I just fish Atlantic salmon. I mean, I may fish uh, a couple of days of trout before salmon season starts each year. But that basically, I'm an Atlantic salmon fisherman. That's all I've been doing for the last... 40 years. Um, and I don't really have a bucket list at this point. I mean, I, um, it's great to land fish. I don't, I don't lose any sleep if I lose fish. Uh, it's more about 
the process. Um, so if there's a chance of getting a fish on a dry fly, I would rather fish dry fly all day and get one rise than fish a wet fly and get three or four fish to the fly. Um, so yeah, no, no bucket list at this point. Um, would love to get a 40 pounder, but I'm not going to lose any sleep if I don't. Oh, yeah, it's a pretty big fish. Um, favorite book, non-fishing. Non-fishing. I don't know that I've ever read any non-fishing <laughs> books, uh, at least not that I can remember. But I will go to um, um, David Adams Richards, who uh, wrote my favorite salmon book called Lines in the Water. But he is uh, one of Canada's great non-fiction writers and Mercy Among the Children, Lights Below Station Street, um, The Coming of Winter. I've read all of his books, and they're all fantastic. But he has written in my mind, the best book on salmon fishing ever called Lines on the Water and another one on hunting called The Heart of the Hunter. Favorite movie of all time? Oh, that's that's got to be um, A River Runs Through It, doesn't it? There you go. I guess it's got to be. We're in the fishing business. What do you do when you're not fishing? What, what, what activity do you like the most when you're not fishing? I've, I'm very, uh, we're, we're lucky. My wife and I are outdoors folks and, um, we spend our winters skiing as much as we can. Uh, we spend our summers salmon fishing as much as we can. And, uh, I, not so much my wife, Suzanne, but I spend my falls grouse and woodcock hunting with my setters as much as I can. So that pretty much takes me through the 12 months of the year. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, cuisine, since I'm a chef, a trained chef, and I'm big into cuisine, uh, actually working on a cookbook, so um, combining with fishing. So uh, if you had one appetizer that is your favorite appetizer, what would it be? That would be barbecued uh, wood, woodcock breasts. Oh, 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 you, you. I know you're where you're going. What's your favorite entree if you had one entree? Uh, one entree would, <clears throat> would be roast grouse. Oh, yeah. Uh, dessert. Um, a nice a nice glass of red wine and a piece of chocolate. Yes, yes. Some good Belgian chocolate or French chocolate or ch Italian chocolate. I did my apprenticeship in Italy, so I'm a big Italian chocolate guy. Um, spirits. Uh, are you a scotch drinker? And if so, what is your favorite blended scotch? And what is your favorite single malt scotch? Um, I am a scotch drinker. And uh, blended would be, I guess, uh, famous gross. Um, I'm, I haven't dabbled in a lot of, of blended, but that that's one that, that I go to regularly. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Albalore of it, Belvini, uh, a 14-year-old. The old, the older, the better. I mean, I, I can't spend an awful lot of money on scotch, but, uh, you know, a 14-year-old, either one of those two would be right up there. Albalore is a great one. Yeah, it's very good. All right, Mr. Bill, this was one. Well, so final question, what are you going to do when you retire? Or are you going to retire? I am going to retire. Uh, I will continue to uh, uh, help the Atlantic Salmon Federation out as an advisor, special projects, uh, what have you. Um, I will uh, need more time for salmon fishing, more time for bird hunting, and more time for skiing. So that's what I'll do. That's a, that's a rough three options you're going to have to do, my friend. That's pretty well, brutal. Well, when I come to... Uh, 
when I get my next trip back to Canada to come fish for Atlantic salmon, I'm going to look you up and I'm going to put a damn spay rod in your hand and teach you how to spay fish because we're going to convert you. You can't be slinging that single hander around all your life. You're going to lose your yeah. shoulder dexterity and you're going to appreciate the fact that you are. So that is all we have, folks. Uh, it has been real talking to you, Bill. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. I think uh, you've given a lot of people a lot to think about. Um, again, a plea for all of us to join Atlantic Salmon Federation and to embrace these fish that that you will come to love if you don't love them already. Um, even if you just love them on your plate, they need your help because this great momentum we have right now could go in one direction so quickly that we wouldn't our head would spin. So very delicate. The world is very delicate now. The environment is very delicate. And the balances are always hanging, and uh, it's up to us. On that note, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Au revoir, au wiedersehen, Samon de Poisson. Au revoir, Davidzenia, Dasvidania. Adios. Goodbye.